When you look long into an abyss, the abyss also looks into you. It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1989 film, The Abyss. An underwater oil rig crew goes on a rescue operation to recover nukes from a sunken submarine. Extraterrestrials live by. I should have made that a haiku. Whoops. Oh, that's after the fact. Anyways, welcome to the abyss. Finally, finally, we need we reach the next blue film in uh in our series of never-ending films to find <laughs> the most blue film out there. Yeah, this one's pretty damn blue. That's for sure. Quite so, quite so. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, those in between and unaffiliated to The Abyss. We are joined by myself, Caleb, and, of course, the Eric. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Great! Swimmingly, if, that's, uh, if I can oh use that term. Boy. Is everybody ready to watch the, or not watch, but talk about the abuse? I mean, sorry. Oh, no. Yeah, the third the third film in our, our James Cameron series. Glad to be continuing this. Happy to have Eric back again, and yeah, The Abyss. This is a, this is almost the forgotten Cameron film in some ways. I mean, maybe that's true lies, but well, there's there's a there's a reason why it's forgotten. Like like both are forgotten, I'd say. Yeah, and I'll just start by by commenting on one of the reasons for me, one of the reasons that I don't watch it very often. Uh, not to mention the length, but I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But man, this DVD, again, I commented on our first Cameron episode how good our, my Terminator DVD held up. But with the two copies of this movie stuck onto one disc, the image is just so compressed, it, it just looks horrible. I couldn't believe it. And I did watch it twice for this, uh, this, this discussion. I watched the theatrical and the director's cut. But both of them, it was like an eyesore in some ways. So, so that was unfortunate. But um, but starting with you, Eric, did you see this in the theater, or when did you see this one? Yes, indeed. This was my first Cameron film at the theater, probably opening weekend. And, uh, yeah. What else am I supposed to say? Um, did you come away uh, positive at the time, or? It was, um, okay. So, we, this is at a time when we saw like a lot of the big movies uh, like you know opening weekend whenever they came out and this movie like well I didn't have all these thoughts back then some of this is retroactive but I'll get back to what I thought at the time um, like 
it's very reminiscent of the movies we had seen 10 years prior uh, especially like the blockbuster types um so it like fit in with that so as a young person i was like oh yeah this is what i'm used to you know in this let's just call it a spielbergian ep- uh era you know like this is what i'm used to but that being said i could not track hardly at all with what the heck was going on or like what was the purpose or what were characters doing or what were their that was completely lost on me (laughs) um, in this movie uh so i just went along with it so i thought it was cool and i thought i saw cool things but it didn't fully register because i couldn't explain to you what the story was other than they were down deep and they had a lot of issues to deal with but I couldn't really explain more than that. Whereas other movies of this era, of this decade, you know, even when I saw them in the earlier 80s, I could at least explain to you, like, the broad strokes of the plot or, you know, what was going on. But this one, I just I just couldn't. Um, it seemed cool and interesting, just, like, the vibe of it. But I couldn't tell you what was going on. Yeah, and I guess that could be a, a point to discuss. Do you feel like maybe there was... I mean, I, I'll, I'll just be honest, I feel like this. I feel like there's too much going on in this movie, and there's it's a massive runtime, and I feel like things aren't necessarily developed very well. This is specifically in the theatrical cut, by the way. And so at the end of it, I feel really unfulfilled by it, and I'm just like, I, I feel like that was a lot of jumble of ideas that never really went anywhere, and then it has a really corny ending that didn't do anything for me. So, so I'll say I've only seen the theatrical cut like maybe twice and each time I've watched it I've been like this is Cameron's worst film so so I was curious what which cut you guys watched for this uh, discussion theatrical interesting so uh, this is as what was it September 10th 2022 is when I first saw this film the theatrical version and then September 11th, 2022 was when I watched the special edition cut or the director's cut of the film. So I've seen both cuts uh, and obviously I prefer the well director's cut because it's the complete film. And I did enjoy some of the theatrical film. I think it still works as a film from start to finish. Uh, obviously that ending might confuse people, but I think it I think it sort of holds up like they, they cut enough away to at least make it i think work in the end but there can be an argument made where it's like no it just does not work at the very end some of it works there's still enough that it has a pretty entertaining start in middle but at a certain point it just starts to really drag and then by the time you get to the end it's kind of like what was it all for why did i kind of experience this and when you say the end you mean when he goes on the arc uh just Maybe once all the big fights start with coffee, I feel like that's when the movie just starts to become... It was like, okay, coffee, like he was having some issues, now he's just way gone over the edge, and now we're getting all these overlong action sequences, and it's just kind of almost dragging its feet towards the end. And then we get there, and I'm just kind of not very impressed. That's how I've always felt, at least. And in the director's cut, I'll admit, I still think some of that stuff goes on too long. Like, even though I love submersibles, I think that little sub chase that they have just goes on way too long. And it's like, okay, we, we've we already, we're already like two and a half hours in here. Like, let's move a little faster. 
So. so, so maybe as we go on through Cameron's career, we'll discuss a little bit about his lengths. But I feel like this is the first one where it's it becomes an issue for me how long the movie is, in both cuts. I have a totally different opinion on this. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so again, I only watched theatrical partly because, well, mainly because I didn't have access to the um, director's cut right now. I've seen it in the mm. past, but um, also, it's probably been approximately 20 to 22 years since I've watched this movie in its entirety. Um, and I just watched the theatrical because it just happens to be streaming right now uh, on Stars slash Prime. And it's in HD, like traditional HD. And oh, so jealous. it's the first time I've ever watched it in HD. Um, really, ever. Um, so, and it doesn't look that bad. It's not it's not up to like modern pristine standards but it looks pretty darn good all things considered and i've never seen it like this and as far as the pacing like i said on aliens last time like once we finally encountered the aliens on the planet with the marines once we hit that point in the movie it just felt like it just took off all the way to the end for me um like in a new way when i just experienced it for the recording recently this movie when i watched it in preparation the whole entire movie felt super fast much faster than i ever remembered it and to me it was just one it was it was like one thing after the other in a very quick way in fact i would have liked it to be slowed down it's i don't exactly know when and where but I needed more breathing points to let certain things settle in, because it was to me. It's just like it's it's just it's just a ride that doesn't stop, um, and it's to me surprisingly brisk. Uh, the theatrical version has a runtime of about two twenty, including the credits, and it felt like one forty five to me. Oh wow, that's a that's a strong uh, statement. <laughs> yeah, and it. It, I mean, I know what's in the director's cut. Well, especially the ending part. And, mm. I mean, I haven't seen that recently, so I can't judge it freshly. I mean, with fresh eyes. But I feel like, yeah, the ending just comes out of nowhere in the theatrical version. I mean, abruptly. And for me, yeah. it's just too quick, and it doesn't have, like, any resonance or staying power. It almost just feels like, oh, we're all in this movie, we're all in this movie, we're all in this movie. Oh, we just ran out of money. End it. Boom. There it is. That's that's how it feels in the theatrical cut to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely get that feeling. Yeah, it feels like a complete change of tone. And, yeah, the visuals change dramatically. It all feels really jarring to me, that ending. Especially in the, the theatrical cut. Um, Isaac, what, what are your thoughts on some of this stuff before I move to some other points? Got it. Um, so I guess I guess I will like at least give my general thoughts uh, quickly. Yeah, I already summarized it, but I I will say that um, I'm I'm feeling this movie. Uh, I'm feeling both. I think the theatrical and the and the and the director's cut. It's not obviously as strong as Aliens, but I think just the amount of like assuredness in this film is 
don't know. I, I, I like what he's doing here with it. But, um, so, well, okay. Yeah. How do I feel about the abyss? This movie made me feel conflicted knowing the behind the scenes drama and the movie shown on screen. And it had me asking myself if a film like this is worth paying for or being praised. So, interesting. It's a conflicting movie given like what I've learned about the behind the scenes of this. I'm confused now. <laughs> well, this film is like a Herculean task in and of itself, even though, again, Titanic exists. <laughs> but at least I've, I watched the behind the scenes of uh, not everything, but I watched most of the behind the scenes of The Abyss and the documentary that came with it in my in my copy. And yeah, I got most of so a lot of the actors' opinions of it. Not every single person's opinions, but some of the stories I heard were kind of horror stories. Given that they had to like be underwater for sometimes like ten hours straight, and then they had to decompress for like an hour straight. And there were times where like some of them like breathed water because they had to like do extensive scenes without um, masks on or breathing equipment on. So and. James Cameron being a perfectionist like I I get why this film might also be blacklisted from people and especially with Cameron himself who was like you know he didn't like the production of it I don't know if he hates the film or anything like that but he's certainly conflicted when it comes to what the production was like oh interesting yeah I had seen those documentaries and I meant to watch them for this uh this discussion I didn't get around to it but I do remember yeah, the actors. This one being one of the ones when I was younger, where I was kind of like, oh, this James Cameron seems like he's a, not a fun guy to work with. So, yeah, you're saying it's it's worse than I remember? Like, they, the actors are pretty pretty unhappy with him overall? As far as I'm aware, Ed Harris and um, uh, his, uh, the, what's what's her name? The female lead. Um, her oh, yeah. her actor are Good not name. exactly on, yeah. <laughs> uh, her and... Um, her and him are not exactly on speaking terms or any speaking terms with James Cameron to this day, uh, apparently. Oh, wow. Yes. Mm. Interesting. Maybe, maybe they've made up. I, I couldn't tell you, but I certainly know she was not happy with, with this. Yeah. Um, just, again, only, only for, for various things. I, I might get into it a little later, but that's, that's where sure. I stand right now, where this is a conflicting movie for me, but I think it's very well done. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly a controversy to talk about. I'll say that. It, I'm, I'm aware of all this stuff. It, it's not conflicting for me in judging the movie. Um, it's conflicting for me yeah. in other ways, but not my assessment of it. Um, because I, I'm just thinking this now. If I was, like, um, a high power, like like established like big time director i feel like i would be in the james cameron vein or how i perceive him to be like real like demanding and i want it just like this and yeah i get you're uncomfortable right now but i really want this to be like this. i feel like that's how it'd be if i was a mainstream high level director so like i can relate to that um and I feel like if I was working for him, like as one of his actors or crew, I I feel like because I think like him, I think in that way, that I'd be willing to go all out, like despite the discomfort and everything. I I would I feel like I would trust him, and I'll be like I will just go off this cliff with you. No pun intended in terms of the movie, 
but I just feel like I'll just I'm just I'll just go and I'll endure all this because I have faith like in you and your methods. That's I just think that's how I would be. So I don't have conflict with that per se. My conflict with it is that I know they went to all these extremes um, with the tanks and everything and all the underwater shooting. My conflict is that for casual audiences, I don't, in terms of production and what they were able to achieve with that stuff, um, I don't think anyone would notice the difference between like the production of this and another movie that came out the same year was like Deep Star Six, uh, I think is what it's called. Because it was one of those situations, yeah. you know, how Hollywood will like release two movies like that are like in the same vein. Now that happens all the time. Well, those these two movies came out like in the same year, like separated by some months. Um, yeah, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit later. There's actually four of them that came out. Yeah, but my point is, I don't think people would notice. Oh, one of these was you know painstakingly shot in in like the largest underwater tank ever, like for a film, and the other one wasn't. I don't think people would be able to figure out which is which, like casual audiences. And that, that to me is my lament and disappointing that in some scenes it kind of comes off, but for all those hours and hours that they spent, it feels like your payoff is like nine and a half minutes of footage where you go, how did they do that? Um, and so that seems a little bit weird to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of it, I think a lot of it that it was even shot, like, without miniatures and stuff, looks more like it's miniatures and doesn't look as impressive as it actually was. And so that's maybe a, a fault on his part. And that's another subject. There's certain miniature shots that almost look like they came out of a Godzilla movie to me. Like, I mean, a Godzilla yeah. <laughs> budgeted movie. And that is very distracting when everything else looks so great and so real and so detailed. Oh, I was thinking Thunderbirds. <laughs> oh, God. No. Well, yeah. You, well, there's a couple, yeah, specific yeah. shots that, yeah, are kind of like Thunderbirds. Yeah, and that is interesting. I mean, this is his third film. I don't know how much this this costs. I didn't look up the budget. But it, it must have been a... It's about 45, give or take. It's a hell of a thing to come to a studio and be like, this is what I want to make. I mean, it's such a, a headache for himself to want to take on. So definitely some some huge ambitions on his part. And I know that this wasn't necessarily a box office failure, but it was the first kind of like misstep for his career. Um, and I think it misstep financially, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. And critically, I, I don't know how this was reviewed, but eighty nine percent, it was reviewed well. Oh wow. Yeah, and I don't know. I I still feel like I mean I haven't seen True Lies in many years. I've only, I haven't seen that since the VHS days, uh, but I've always thought of this as one of his weaker films, second only to uh, Avatar. Um, as much as I, <laughs> I really do enjoy it, and I think there's a lot of really great aspects to it, I really do think that this is a, a step down from those first two in a lot of ways. But, but I guess uh, we'll go. Uh, I think it's a step down in, in terms of overall enjoyment compared to the first two. But in terms of filmmaking, I think it is, it is it is going to the moon in a positive way. Interesting. 
Oh yeah, well, I think think of an area. Yeah. Well, let's just go to uh to uh, the characters with Bud and his uh I don't remember his wife's name. Lindsay. Lindsay. Now, since Eric, since you just watched the theatrical cut, how did you feel that their relationship developed throughout the movie? Because it's very different than the director's cut. Um, it was fine, but it was quick. In other words, yeah. the transition was quick. Because, you know, they're very separate. Um, and then, I guess it's when the sub-chase happens. Um, and then they are united at the hip. And it, it, but it's just like there's just a switch I, like, yeah. it just goes from one to the other like, just like that um, end of story yeah, <laughs> even the theatrical cut there's almost no nice scenes between them before then it's just they're con constantly at each other and the next thing you know they're they're back together and they're they're friendly again so I really didn't like that in the theatrical cut it's done a, a hell of a lot better in the director's cut there's a lot more scenes between them just kind of fleshing each other out and kind of like there's even a scene um, where bud comes up to her and he's like oh you how's that guy you've been seeing and they kind of discuss how she recently broke up with him and bud's talking about the stuff that she's been missing in in him versus the guy she was dating i thought that was a really charming scene i thought they uh played it really well i was really missing that in the theatrical cut um but even my, my still thought... oh go ahead my thought was pre-makeup uh, between the two characters in the theatrical cut pre-makeup they're both of them a bit too archetypal for me like mm -hmm. a little bit too on the nose um and what i mean is he has straight up all the stereotypical um like masculine characteristics of a character and she yeah. has all the stereotypical feminine feminine and it, it's just they're just way too archetypal um but i get that though because uh, can't, it's another conversation for another day, but I think majority of the characters in um, Avatar are also very archetypal as well, which I think is one of the mm -hmm. things people don't like about that movie. Um, but maybe that's just his way. Um, and sometimes, yep. which I can understand because I know it's what people rail against in certain Nolan films where they say it's like the characters they're almost like automatons that are like um okay i've never put it this way before but uh, in reference to nolan movies but you know i've never seen it in real life but you know how there's that it's a small world thing at disney world um yep. where you like go through and then all the people are or the characters are like animatronic or something or motorized or something yeah, and so that. like you don't ever believe there's any like real miniature people from around the world right they're just like automatons and i think mm -hmm. there's a bunch of nolan films where people see his characters as that that they just function as automatons within the movie that he created but they're not fully fleshed characters and i get that if that's your criticism but for me i don't necessarily need it because of other elements in these movies so even if you feel that way in this movie well i just said i did it doesn't necessarily take me out of the movie, um, but it also doesn't necessarily endear me to the characters either. Okay, well, this this what Eric was just saying was bleeding into a broader issue that I have with this movie, and that's that I feel like this movie, in many ways, was James Cameron being like, okay, you know, I've done my kind of horror roots, I've 
you know, blood into action. Now what I want to do is kind of an epic message movie in the style of a Steven Spielberg film. And Steven Spielberg, I've mentioned in the past, I feel like his characters are usually super artificial and they feel kind of sculpted to, to please an audience. And I feel that throughout this movie. I feel like some of the sappier elements near the ending feel ripped out of any kind of overtly sappy Spielberg movie. And I even think that they call the, the lead character Bud. And he's meant to just be, oh, you know, he's a, he's a regular, you know, kind of working man type guy. And then immediately his, his, his uh, whatever, his ex-wife, she's the queen bitch of the universe. She's a working woman type, and so she's, all of her life is dedicated to the job, and she's this stiff chick who just needs to chill out and realize that there's more to life than <laughs> all that feels very Spielberg and I just don't don't care for those instincts at all so, so that's some of my issues with this um, and once we get to the talking about the message of the movie and the director's cut which again I definitely feel like is the superior cut but his messaging stuff is way sledgehammery and it feels a little cartoony <laughs> so but we'll, maybe we'll get to some of that later. Yeah. I mean, I kind of agree. It's just, I, with everything you said, it's just not a super turnoff or as much of a turnoff for me as it is for you. But I agree with everything you said. That's fair. And you like Spielberg more than me, too. So that it could just be a taste. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but I'm not <laughs> that in love with Spielberg's work. Um, it, 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 I'm, I'm very a la carte. It depends which one you're talking about. Uh some I'm, I'm much more okay with than others. Me too. Me too. Is this story just a retelling of James Cameron's divorce with Gail Ann Hurd? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. So Gail Ann Hurd, for those who don't know, was the producer on The Terminator and uh, Aliens. Uh, and this movie, uh, The Abyss. She and Cameron had met through Roger, Cor- Roger Corman, excuse me, and they they grew very close, close to the fact that they married, um, and so around this time was when uh, him and her split, I guess, because of probably Cameron, I'll, I'll be honest here, it was probably Cameron given his fiery temper and whatnot and his big personality, um, and she couldn't take any of that from him. So yeah, I, I, it makes sense, and uh, I don't know if she produces T two. We'll we'll find. I'll, I'll I'll give you that information next time. I'm gonna forget that. Um, yes. Or uh, or wait. Did she? Um, I think so. I, I'm like seventy five percent sure. Well, well. Anyways, um, almost killed what I wanted to add with your whole like these these are just like Bud and uh, Lindsay are just or, sorry Virgil and Lindsay they're just archetypes. Is this proto-Avatar? Like, is this just, like... Are we watching proto-Avatar before 2009? It's a lot of similarities. I think... I think many of... But I don't... I I, I agree. But I think that... If you look at the whole full filmography of James Cameron, there is always an element of some proto-ism in his earlier works versus his later works, no matter which ones we're talking about. Um, because I see aliens as certain elements of that being a proto abyss, um, and certain elements of Terminator as being a proto aliens, and and then the same thing you just said for 
Avatar, but also as it relates to there's elements of this that are proto Titanic, you know. So I, I think like he's he's constantly building on his own works. I think and like and it's um, it reminds me of uh, like going through his filmography and chronologically, it reminds me of uh, one of my friends worked at like a, a local tech company um in the city i'm from like it's 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 a tech company you probably haven't heard of but um they do like uh, some type of cloud storage or something um and i, I know from just meeting random people that everybody wants to work there because they everyone says it's like a cool place to work the way people talk about pixar or google or something like it's a cool place to work um because of this and that and all the foosball table and all that kind of stuff um, and I, so my friend started working there and I was like, so what is it like? And, or actually it wasn't my friend who told me this. It was an, a stranger who works there. I mean, someone I just randomly met and I was like, so how does it work? Because everyone does some type of programming or something. Um, and they told me like, like whatever level you start at, um, it like of whatever level of coding or programming you have, like they put you in an appropriate position to where you'll learn the next thing that you don't know. In other words, where they put you in the company to work over time is like an on the job training type experience. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll put you at the lowest level. And then when you get good at that, we'll teach you this thing. And then when you get good at that, we'll teach you this thing. And then we'll teach you this thing. And the next thing you know, it's like, it's like Danielson getting his training from Mr. Miyagi. Like he didn't realize like it was all culminating to something. And so each camera film chronologically, I think that's like him going, he's like doing on the job training. So everything he did prior to abyss culminated in the abyss. And then same thing for Titanic, same thing for avatar. Like everything he did prior culminated in then in that current project that he's delivering because you know, he he like he got used to working with miniatures and Terminator, um, and then he got used to like I don't know bigger sets and bigger budgets in in the second one, and different kinds of more different kinds of special effects. And in the third one, he added the whole underwater element, and so I think it's like his his own on the job training of culminating everything he's experienced. Um, yeah, and I think that's the benefit of doing a retrospective like this, going through the director's films in in order i think you really get to see some of that you know, picking up certain things or emphasizing others and definitely water being one of the yeah the big traits that we saw kind of introduce in aliens and we'll definitely see that continue all the way up to uh to avatar 2 so and and i only just found like isaac's comment really interesting because um i well first of all i never thought about that aspect because that's very i mean it's very normal a lot of director writers you know pull from their own like personal experiences um and, mm -hmm. and, it, and it rolls into their works Fam uh, more recently famously with midsummer um but because he was inspired by his like breakup when he came up with that story and that that's pretty wild it's a wild thing to come up with but then it also reminded me of ingmar bergman because a good percentage of all his movies he was basically reflecting on his current situations and he was a he was a bit of a coxman uh if you know what i mean like uh 
he had like Woody Allen. He had like his steady muses over the decades, like like different eras, like with this muse, and then he moved to his next, his next. But he also saw plenty of women on the side, so and and it's reflected like in his characters' relations, like in his movies. So yeah, that, that's very interesting, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some of that. Yeah, and she definitely was a producer on uh, Terminator 2 and Terminator 3. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I definitely didn't think of that connection with this movie. But yeah, maybe that's just not really looking into his personal life. But, but yeah, I could see that being a big influence. What's wild is that soon after divorcing James Cameron, she like married um, Brian De Palma for a stint. Oh, wow, that's that's interesting. <laughs> and then I don't know this other director, but soon after she divorced him she was with a different director named uh uh jonathan hensley oh my god he did oh no he wrote jumanji but but not not jumanji uh that's not the significant one armageddon which i feel like drew upon aspects of this movie oh yes definitely (laughs) (laughs) oh but isaac uh since you started with started this with the uh that Nietzsche quote that they, they opened the director's cut with. I was curious what you thought of that. Did you think that was a little on the nose? So they don't open the theatrical cut with that. And I wondered if it, maybe it was a better choice in the studio's part to cut that. But I, I wasn't sure. I couldn't quite. Well, here's the thing. Um, I learned that all the between the theatrical cut and the director's cut, unlike maybe in Aliens where the studio wanted to cut a lot of like those scenes uh, that we saw in the director's cut. Mm-hmm. Apparently it was Cameron himself who stated, we're going to cut some of these scenes. So the studio, all he had, this is insane. I think he almost had zero interference from the studio. They gave him carte blanche to make this film and they didn't even mm-hmm. interfere with him like with with any of his decisions until he said this 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 actual movie is like 170 minutes i'm gonna like cut it down a bit i thought they said yeah you have complete rain but then once he delivered the final edit and it was so long they're like oh you got to cut out some of this that that's what i thought but you watched the behind the scenes so maybe i thought it was i i yeah I, i i thought i read somewhere that he was the one that said no i will uh, cut. I will personally cut some of these scenes, and then later on we'll restore them. Um, and it was, the, wow. it was the it was the executives themselves that stated, "Hey, we don't have a problem with you cutting these scenes. Go ahead and make your 170 million or some million, 170 minute long film. Like we have no problem releasing that." And he's like, "Nope, we're gonna we're gonna cut it down." That's, that's the, even crazier. That's insane. <laughs> but also, I don't I don't know if this played into those decisions. On either end, but apparently some some of the test screening, screenings went a little bit weird on this movie. Yeah, um, that's I heard that too, or I read that too. Yeah, that yeah. they like reshot all of a lot of that ending because of that stuff. Because yeah, I guess I guess some of Cameron's more lofty, like messaging stuff was triggering unintentional laughter, which fair enough eh, to some to some degree. So they went back and they're like, "Oh crap, this is not going to play right. Let's let's do some changes." But maybe that was Cameron. Maybe he saw that and was embarrassed and, and tried to clean it up or something. By the way, is 
I didn't know the quote, or because I didn't see the, the. Is this one about um, about battling monsters and looking into the abyss? It's it's about looking into the abyss and it looking back. Uh, it's it's kind of reminiscent, Caleb. If you remember, you you probably don't, but in Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, uh, I believe Batman says something similar to Owlman uh, right before yep. he's trying to destroy the multiverse, where um, he Batman says to Owlman, like you looked into the abyss and um, you blinked, or something like yep. that. Yeah, which is <laughs> a really awesome quote. But yeah, this yeah. is uh, Frederick Nietzsche. Um, and the reason that quote was not in the theatrical cut was because I don't know which film it was, but apparently I, I think it was either distributed by Fox or somebody in the same year of 1989 had the same exact quote uh, before its title card. So either the studio or Cameron was like, "All right, let's let's uh, let's let's not do that for this." Yeah. And, uh, again, what do you think about it? Because I'm still torn. I don't know. In some ways, it feels like a, a corny two-on-the-nose choice for this movie. But I, I get why he would... I get how it fits, but I just don't know if it was... I, I, what do you think? <laughs> well, okay, truth be told, I love the quote, don't get me wrong. Like, outside of this film, it's a really good quote. Um, yeah. We all ourselves stare into the abyss. And he goes... I think Cameron also makes a point to in the documentary, he talks about uh, why he chose that quote. Um, and that humans are all kind of like in an abyss oh golly that that line um with Lindsay to uh virgil when he's just slowly descending down and they talk about like the candle uh when the power is out that was an interesting quote i don't know any quote i, I kind of like that moment uh just like the two, I, that was really like i think heartwarming moment between the two but um i don't know i i don't know how much the abyss itself played into uh, this film, if that makes any sense. Okay, maybe not, but like, I don't know if there's like any existential or cosmic horror dread with the abyss itself, uh, given that we have those Spielberg aliens uh, towards the end. But um, the quote itself really sets a sets a mood. Like when you when you put Nietzsche on there, like it's a kind of serious quote so you kind of have to like talk the talk for 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 you you have to earn your your place to to say that quote if if that makes any sense so the question is i think what you're saying is does this film live up to that quote like does it uh yeah does 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 it follow the the quotes um uh message see what's weird to me yeah what's weird to me is that um the quote just on its face, because I'm not really familiar with it. I'm just looking at it now and thinking about it now. It, like, it, it comes across as almost like um, an analogy for like PTSD or something along those lines. I'm not saying literally that, but something along those lines that like forever changes you. Just seeing the quote on its face. But then when you watch the movie and then think about the quote, it almost seems like a little weirdly on the nose but but outside the meaning of the quote where yeah um if we just keep looking down here into the abyss um while we're doing that and trying to figure out what the heck's down there or what's going on like it's looking back at us <laughs> because because the aliens are also like judging the people looking from above 
Um, (laughs) It's almost like if you can imagine an image of some child looking into a pond and then imagine like two um, anamorphic sea creatures like Spongebob looking up at at the kid and like wondering about the kid as the kid looks. Or like that episode of The Simpsons where um is it lisa who like creates that whole civilization in her locker or was that bart but one of them does and 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 they see like bart or lisa whoever it is is like their deity um i don't know so i don't know i, I yeah I'm, I'm really all over the place with this quote <laughs> same here yeah and again some of it i feel like cameron latched onto it because of the title connection but I was also wondering if maybe his abyss was meant to be like the abyss is mutually dis- assured destruction. It's the, the ugliness of humanity embodied in this this Cold War conflict. Okay, so but, okay, if you put it that way, because I was about to say, thinking for like I could imagine this quote being like on the screen at like the beginning of like Full Metal Jacket. Mm. I could I could mm-hmm. see that, and I could see how you could like contemplate the movie and then think about this quote with that piece you know and then it you know it seems like something like that or it almost reminds me of like it's like a bit like on the nose like um like uh do they say it at some point in apocalypse now but do they make any reference to heart of darkness but it's almost like thinking of like a quote from heart of heart heart of darkness the novel and then, like, seeing Apocalypse Now, you know, mm. just being, like, right on the nose. Because uh, that's another movie where it's sort of like a character going into the abyss, or figuratively going into the underworld, and then being forever changed by that. That's kind of my well, why I, I struggle with this. I feel like, in some ways, it feels like it's too on the nose, but when you really start to think about it, then it becomes a little more nebulous. And I'm like, oh, wait, I don't really know how... How well you can attribute that quote to this and it's even weirder when you think about the kind of cheesy ending like there's a terrible line in the director's cut where like the uh i think he's whatever guy is kind of running this oil rig from the surface he looks up at the i don't know if it's a general or whatever that guy is and he's like well it looks like you boys are out of business no, they're really all happy they're all cheery like oh the aliens they're they're ending the cold war for us and then you look back at that line that opened the movie, and it's kind of like, oh, this feels weird. Something about this just doesn't quite connect. <laughs> so, maybe I'm overthinking it, though. I don't know. Maybe it's just supposed to be a cool thing to open the movie. But <laughs> Oh, God, I'm watching the uh, the rat scene, but, but I'll save that if you guys still have more to talk about with this one. I got it. So this is how it's the pro-Titanic, based upon what oh. we were just talking about. <laughs> Sure. So, when you see the conflicts with um, Michael Bean and, and the rest mm-hmm. of the uh, Leatherneck crew, or the or you could, or let's say the Seals against, okay, so there's this whole thing where you could say like the Seal Team represents like the government or authoritarianism, whereas mm-hmm. the Leatherneck crew represent like the everyman, quote unquote regular everyday people salt of the earth people right um so if you see like that and then when they have their conflicts their continual conflicts with michael bean as he continues to go crazy you know you can you can look at that as like an authoritarian government or system like going off the rails like you can look at it that way 
Um, and, like, with all their infighting, like, there's bigger things they should be worrying about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why are they concerned with all these... Like, why are they fighting all, all these... This reminds me of a conversation me and Sean just had recently on Interstellar. Because I was saying, when we were talking about Interstellar, um, it all boils down to, like, the whole human race is about to be extinct, and we have a plan that we have a shot in the dark on how we can keep humankind going. And it's all come down... At one point in the movie... Spoilers if you haven't seen that. But it comes down to Matt Damon and Matthew McConaughey going at it on a glacier. And it's come to this. Like, all humankind is in the balance, is hanging in the balance, and these two idiots are sliding around pro-wrestling on a glacier. Um, And if one of these guys fucks it all up, like, we're done. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how insanely ridiculous and futile like like what and then the reason i said it it made me think of the titanic because you know them fighting while all this Mm. shit is going on is like them rearranging chairs on the titanic while it's all going down like what the fuck are you doing like why are you dealing with this nonsense when there's like bigger things going on and then i was and then just because i was thinking um you know ultimately because of the cheesy ending where everything is kumbaya it's kind of like the people in the titanic in the movie they have all their individual struggles and motivations and all these concerns and it's set up to where you know as you're watching the movie oh yeah there's all these everyone's got their own separate storylines and issues and drama but you you know even the first time you watch the movie you know this is all moot because they're about to hit an iceberg you know uh there's this impending doom of like an iceberg representing like the end of the world and you know how in the beginning everyone's divided by class and everything um and all that business and all those things they're concerning themselves with which is all meaningless in the grand scheme of things and ultimately they're all equalized at the very end um and they all either die like they're they're either all by the end of the movie united by death or united um as we are all just people in this together regardless of your class or standing or what you came in with like whatever baggage we're all equal the survivors and the dead at the end so this whole movie it's it's just like those similar themes so it's the prototype video. <laughs> well that's yeah yeah we'll definitely discuss some of how yeah that comes across in that movie the idea the endless kind of melodrama yeah i'm not trying to step on that conversation but but he just made me think about it because it is all this that's what i kept feeling in this movie like god damn another damn crisis like like you know like like, you know it's it's the absurdity of hey we're potentially discovering like an unknown sentient species alien like but all we can do is like try to like kill each other in the process Yeah, I want to discuss that with the theatrical cut, since that's the only one that you watched. How did you feel like the alien plot developed? I hated how initially you have the stereotypical... It reminded me of, like, Doctor Who, or something like Doctor Who, a classic serial Doctor Who, or classic horror movies, or other shows that are like classic Doctor Who with Creature of the Week where you have to go through the whole phase of like this person saw it but like no one believes it 
like, oh, yeah, I did see it, but I didn't see it. And, like, and everyone, you know, in Doctor Who, it's always, like, the other colonists or, like, the other circus workers or no one believes that it's an actual true threat. And it's only, like, the select few who have seen it. And you have to, like, you have to, like, go through all the motions of, like, oh, great. I gotta get more people to believe me. And if, yeah. you know, if we send the little rover down, and then we, we can show them. Um, where I felt like, oh, my God, what's her name? Lindsay? Lindsay. Like, that one scene, like, annoyed me so much um, where she was, like, going off about, oh, my God, like, I saw it. I saw him, you know, and there's these things. And, and like, Ed Harris's character, he wasn't necessarily, I mean, he didn't really believe her, but that's not, I don't, I feel like that wasn't what his point was in that scene. Mm-hmm. His point wasn't necessarily that I don't believe you, even though he kind of didn't, but it was like, that's not my point. My point is, could you just chill out right now? Because, <laughs> like, this is not the time to bring that up. You know, this is just making everything crazy, crazier right now. And she was just completely ignoring it. And I hated that, that she, like, because she became, like, hysterical in her own way um, after she caught a glimpse of these aliens. And she also, like, for a time, like, completely lost her rationality as well. And that was, like, oh, so frustrating. Um, yeah, no, she's a weirdo with the aliens. Like, she immediately assumes <laughs> that they're intelligent immediately assumes that they're like good positive influences yes like, it's weird i th- i <laughs> thought about that like what if if you imagine some humans or whatever like encountering let's pretend like dolphins for the very first time um and let's pretend you could like swim in the ocean and like interact with them and see them do what dolphins do but if you had never seen them and this is a completely new organism to you and you just be like oh my god like yeah there's like these sea people and they have this whole society. Like, I mean, if you just, like, upon first meeting them, you just started thinking, oh, my God. Like, they're just like us. But they live in the ocean. And and uh, and it assumes they're aliens, too. She also just yeah. assumed that out of nowhere. <laughs> or, like, or, yeah, or you'd call the dolphins aliens. Like, these are aliens that have come. Or there's some otherworldly <laughs> creature that has decided to live in our oceans. And and, and they're sentient. And they, they understand. Like, we're, like, like... I could see someone like having that experience with a dolphin, but at the end of the day, it's, I mean, I get dolphins are really intelligent, but, but you, you wouldn't like think they're necessary. I mean, well, you might, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they put are. them on our same right. level, like right off the bat, um, like they're equals like team and kind, but they just live under the ocean. And then like dolphins, you know, cause people always think dolphins are cute and interesting and like man's friend in the ocean, but you know, like, there's this whole dark side to like dolphin society and you know why would you assume that there isn't like this whole dark side to these aliens as well yeah, and it's especially weird for her she's like the most cynical character in the movie but immediately she's charmed by these floating i mean they look like deep sea like fish yeah, yeah. she's like oh they're machines they're from they're not from here they're aliens and she's the one who's immediately on on their side like that plays a little strange and false, and then in the director's cut, she's wrong. I mean, they 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 put their waves to almost wipe out humanity. It's like a warning, like, hey, don't fuck. We don't want to see you guys messing around. Get in line. So they're not all that innocent, <laughs> and she's a little bit of a dumbass for immediately assuming. But but Isaac, how do you think the uh, the aliens were, were portrayed in this this movie? Well, okay, hang on. Uh, before we go there, even though I agree with you on that, I just needed to ask that—not ask, but bring up something. 
is that I, I've not seen this other film I'm about to bring up, but like fold all the way through, but I've seen clips of it. This this film really reminded me of 2010, the year we make contact. Um, a spe- and I think that's what he was trying to create. Probably not, but like I can't help but think he's trying to make something on that level, where that was very much like if if, if this is James Cameron's Cold War piece, if this is him trying to have an anti Cold War message, does it work? Like does is is the message ring true is it like too heavy-handed or is it like oh my goodness people would be like their hearts are are completely switched like they no more cold war uh the year the year the cold war ends by the way but yeah you know 2010 was you know 20 years after 10 10 in the in in universe but like 20 years after filming 2001 that's where two uh yeah two astronaut crews have to go and basically go back to um, uh, the, the Explorer, whatever, I forget the, the space shuttle's Discovery? name. Yeah, Discovery. And both of them are, one's, one's American, one's Russian, or USSR, excuse me, and they both have to work together. I was wondering if, like, this would have made a little more sense if they're, even if they were just stealing the, the same plot, uh, if they just did uh like they had rush uh, ussr troops in here instead of like the navy seals and if that would have been a little more effective yeah and i definitely want to get to them uh, relatively soon but uh what, what were your thoughts on the aliens the aliens yeah fair and enough. how they developed so very different than the aliens from ghost of mars where in the theatric in, in ghost of mars those are completely malevolent but in the theatrical theatrical cut they're benevolent uh, I mean, the aliens in the abyss theatrical cut are benevolent, um, but yeah, obviously in the how do I put it? In the uh, director's cut, the aliens are much more um, by terms of uh, nuclear arms race. They are showing their hand at like, look at what we can do, knock it off. Yeah. And does that make sense? The thing is that you. And Eric want the message. You want the message to be a little more clear, or maybe more talked about. They sort of had that with the on the TV there when they were flipping their channels, and they just like in the director's cut where you oh. kept seeing in news interviews uh, from different people of like you know it is what it is. These guys have children. Why are we doing this? I don't know. What we can't. It's out of my hands. Um, you you saw that, so that was at least nice. But how did it translate all into? Like down here in the abyss, down here in this, in this. So there's, he has a lot of ideas in this. He's got so many ideas that he wants to like talk about and tackle, that I feel like you you guys are probably on the on the moment, or you guys are on the money of. Yeah, he's. It, it all doesn't work in the end. But the aliens, great design. Um, I wanted more. I really was like wanting more from them. I wanted. I thought they were gonna play a bigger role okay i think they played a big role in the film but like i thought they were going to be more Mm. integrated in the film and maybe i'm just incorrect in that but like yeah i thought it was going to be way more about like again just them having whereas they i'm trying to think of a film i've seen i know i've seen a film similar to this where like they don't they aren't really the big 
talking point of the film. And it's, um, you almost question... Signs? Yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh. But, like, I know what you're talking about. Um, but, like, it's almost like Cameron used them as an excuse to, like, do this technology. Uh, I mean, well, with, with, the, with the pseudopod or, you know, the water camera or the water probe, whatever you want to call it, like use that as an excuse to try that technology out I don't, I don't know oh and of course I would uh, be reminiscent to not say George Lucas you absolute hack <laughs> how dare you take the design of one of those ships the alien ships and turn it into the Gungan submarine oh <laughs> oh interesting okay hmm. I can see a com- comparison yeah and, and I also want to make another point that uh, Mr. Jordan Peele sort of had the same idea spoilers for Nope but whenever Jean Jacket is awake uh, electronic signals die guess mm-hmm. what these guys do whenever they're around electronics yeah it's a pretty common alien trope but yeah I didn't know that never mind I'm ignorant um, and yeah that that's kind of what I was asking because I feel like when I watch this like yeah the, the aliens are a big part you even see on the cover that kind of moment with Jammer in the uh, so sunken sub. Like, the aliens are kind of a big selling point in some ways. But they really don't feel like they're that much of a presence in the movie. No. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it, it almost feels like when they, they show up at the end, it's almost like, oh yeah, those aliens. Like, you know, I guess we gotta wrap up this side of the plot. Yeah, that, that seems a little weird. By the way, are they aliens? Is that established? I don't think it is established. They say it. <laughs> the characters say it, but no, I don't think it really is. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not clear that they're aliens or extraterrestrial. Could be Silurians or whatever or something like that. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I took I mean, I mean, the Silurian origins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I almost took them as something like that. That that they're of this world. I got it. So the monolith, 2001, that's what it was. I thought they were going to be similar to 2001, where the monolith is kind of the pre- the, the crux of, of why the Discovery is going out all the way to Saturn. Mm. Or Jupiter, whichever it was. Which, depending on the film or the or the book. But, like, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I thought it was. Because the, the monolith is the reason in that film we have a, a crew of people going out there. And then what happens in there is, you know, all the interesting stuff. But we didn't get that with this. To be fair, to be fair, they it's like Transformers 2007 in that we open the film with the alien or with with the speculative aliens, let's put it that way. Aliens not <laughs> not otherwise specified. Um interfering with a nuclear submarine and causing it yes. to crash, causing this whole thing to start, but it's still not like we're after the aliens. It's more we're after the nukes and then misinformation or not even misinformation being cut off from the line and miscommunication is what leads to the entire like nuclear plot to start. Yeah, and I did definitely want to discuss that because that scene plays very differently in the two different cuts, I think. In the first theatrical cut, it almost seems like the aliens, or whatever they are, just kind of exploring around. And if any kind of ships come by, they go and check it out. And it just so happens to be a nuclear sub that they kind of knock out. In this one, by the, we get, by the time we get to the end, I wonder, were they like, don't bring your fucking nukes in our, our swim space, 
and they just sunk it on purpose? Like, like, what do you, what do you guys think in that regard? Because that would make the aliens look a little bit more menacing, considering all the dead people that are left in that sub. I took it more the first way. Of course, that's the only cut I watched. But now that you raise the other point, now, now I don't know, because <laughs> now I can see it going both ways. But it definitely seems the first way almost throughout. Again, they're very vague. There's little character to them. There's a lot of room for interpretation and projecting your own thoughts onto them. So, really, you don't... I don't know whether or not it was accidental. They just went by and the... Uh, like, like the, the bogey... Not the bogey, but the... the not, not, to, not to be specified... Uh, alien goes by the sub doesn't know there's nukes in it but just happens to whiz by and the sub gets too close and without them focusing on where the terrain is they ram into the side of the cliff uh, underwater cliff excuse me and that's what starts the whole plot I I want to assume that because again there's no mention of hey because you guys have nukes we're gonna do I mean well Okay, okay. Obviously, yeah, the ending of, of the director's cut, yes, they have nukes, but they didn't show the nukes in the submarine. Unless I'm ignorant to that, and they, they knew about the nukes in the sub, which I assume you're probably going to say they knew about the nukes in the sub. I, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm leaning more towards the first original, um, that it was just happenstance, they just happened to come near, it's just a feature of them being like a natural EMP pulse. And I don't think that they sought it out or necessarily regarded it as a threat coming into their area, um, this nuclear sub. Um, that being said, though, um, based on the director's cut, I think there's this aspect of, that's not that doesn't exist at all in the theatrical cut. There's this aspect in the in director's cut that they've been watching us all along. Yep. Um, but they're kind of like the junkions in the uh, animated Transformer film. Like, they just understand humans by what they've seen on television. And I know there's other movies, sci-fi movies from the 80s that do the same thing. Where, I can't think of the exact um, examples, though. Where they just know humans from what they've seen on television. Um, and they've just kind of... But they don't exactly know. It's just what they've gotten from from their observations yeah which again i don't know how well that plays when it's just kind of bud and the aliens and the buds like like why are you doing all this like what's going on and they show all like the horrors on the screens and they're and then they like they decided not to wipe out humanity because <laughs> like his i love you wife message they're like oh we saw that humanity has good sides too like you love each other so we decided just to send a warning instead I was like, that, I don't, that, that feels like a piece of the 80s that wouldn't exist otherwise, and rightfully so, because it's real corny. But, <laughs> but I did want to maybe move away from that plot and talk about some of the, uh, the soldier stuff, because I was just watching a scene that kind of irritated me from before. Where, uh, so the whole time there's this hurricane coming, and we kind of find out in the director's cut that, like, the aliens are causing the hurricane, it's not, uh, like just an, an unfortunate incident like it kind of seems like in the theatrical cut um and they all know this hurricane's coming and yet that general or whatever he is still sends off coffee and all them 
to use some very important equipment, like right when the hurricane's about to strike. And I get uh, Cameron's messaging, kind of his anti-military uh, point of view coming through again, which I, I can definitely understand. But in this one, I feel like it's a little bit more clumsy. Like, they really do seem incompetent and stupid. Like, coffee... Like, he knows what decompression sickness, um, what the symptoms are, and he immediately notices it. It's the first thing he notice, notices when he walks onto the, uh, the sea base. But he doesn't tell anybody. It's like, would, would he really do that? Would someone of his kind of position just be that arrogant and, and stupid? So some of that, I feel like, also feels kind of like forced drama. I can't really get, get with that plot. Even though I think Michael Bean has some really good performance stuff, I just can't get behind it from the start. Yeah, well, that reminds me of, like, um, oh, what did I watch in the last year or so where the astronaut or astronauts were just acting completely bonkers? Oh, wait. Oh, Star Trek Picard. What's the Doctor <laughs> Who... Well, oh yeah, Star Trek Picard. That's one. That's one example recently. Uh, and I, was, I thought maybe there was something Doctor Who we watched recently, or maybe it was Star Trek. Maybe it was Star Trek Picard, where it's like, man, this is really uncharacteristic of a real professional, or um, not just real professional, but someone who's risen through the ranks in this particular discipline, mm-hmm. um, where they, where the, where the military has so many things where they try to weed people out on a psychological basis and on a physical basis it seems strange and unlikely that someone would get that far and then completely go bonkers but then of course i mean i guess it happens but i don't know if it happens at that high level and that high level i mean like these guys are all seals um but it is the kind of thing that would happen in some random episode of star trek or stargate or something where someone knows like they have an issue and then they don't tell anybody <laughs> or or like in zombie movies where there's a character who knows they got bit and they mm-hmm. don't tell anybody until it's way too late um so it's that it's that weird trope yeah and if it was just him and if like maybe he wasn't the first in command but the first in command dies or something i think that would work better but it's also like the guy who's not even down there with them whoever that asshole is like he's stupid too. Yeah, that's and he's just sitting there like, well. <laughs> but that's probably Cameron, like, like many people did in the eighties. Um, it's like the scars of, of the Vietnam conflict and like the afterthoughts yeah. that people had about that whole thing. So that might be what that character represents: is that armchair general who's far, far away, making these crazy judgment calls for the people in the ground. What bothered me more than Michael Bean's character keeping his secret, what bothered me more was how much his squad just went with it. Yes, especially his little second in command. Ugh. Yeah, like how far they went like down this road of insanity with him. And then they just flip on a dime as well. I mean when they when they like, they abandoned him, like, so suddenly. It's it's bizarre. Yeah, like, his little second-in-command, who barely speaks throughout the whole movie, has, like, one line. He, uh, he can even see that Michael Bean, he's, like, he's not speaking in full sentences necessarily. He's repeating himself. He's cutting himself visibly. The guy's like, oh, maybe you should get some rest. But then just completely goes ahead with his plan anyway and just 
It's like it's pretty clear at this point that you're cut off from the chain of command. The guy who is in charge is no longer even in charge of himself. Like th there's no reason to follow any sort of protocol at that point. But that fucking guy is such a non-character. He just goes along with it. Yeah, there's, there's just those little minor weaknesses that I feel like Cameron is a, a smarter writer than what he looks like in this movie. Like he could have done a lot, a lot better in terms of that kind of stuff. And again, I, I'm totally on board if you want to talk about, oh, the generals, they're morons. They don't really have the experience that they need to be in that position. They're making dumb calls. But it, when it's all these, these characters, it becomes like a weird one-sided debate that feels kind of a little childish in some way, if that makes sense. Yeah, but again, I think there's these certain times in here and there throughout his works where... James Cameron just 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 goes doesn't care just um, <laughs> just goes for it like the analogy or or putting something on the nose or not even trying to obscure a certain message or something. If I have any criticism of him, it's that is it, I mean in general, at, in this movie and others, if I have any criticism of him is that he's not really about nuance when it comes to. Um, metaphor and allegory yeah and i can be fine with that if it's written in a way that doesn't feel like you're painting your other the other side as cartoon characters like like i'm not going to knock um the performance of michael bean i think he really gives a like a great performance but i just can't escape feeling like he knew what the signs were why didn't he say something like was he like, was there, was there something wrong with him from the start? Is he like Jack in The Shining? Like, why wouldn't he... Oh, right. He actually he is a lot like Jack in The Shining. Uh, now that you mention it. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just... I, I, I can't get past that. How much of it is he? Uh, I can get past that. Well, what did you think, uh, Isaac, about some of this, this stuff? Well, just with uh, regards to... Well, first off, do you think this needs another draft? Yes. I definitely think that this needed a couple more drafts, I think, to flesh out some of this stuff. Okay. No, that's fair. That makes sense. It, it is frustrating because it's not like he has a... I think he probably does have a good track record, and you've seen great from him, correct? Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the disappointment, is like... And not that this is even, like, a terrible movie. It's just, like, not as great as you want it to be. Like, it could be so much... This is not, by the way, utter crap. Like, this is... Not utter crap, but you, I get what you're no. saying. Where this needs another rewrite, so we can we can get those good moments similar to like Alien, excuse me, or Terminator. And this just doesn't have it from what you're saying. I think I agree with what Isaac is saying, and I'll go further. Go ahead. Um, I think because yeah, like we are judging this so much more critically and more harshly because. This is his only like, um, like, like, like. This is like a I don't know how to speak baseball talk, like a, like a two base hit or something, um, which is great, but we're mm -hmm. just going for home runs, like because of his body of work. Um, for instance, like, because if any other just regular director did this, this would be this could be like a regular director, like this could be like his best movie. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. For directors with less notable works. And I was thinking also, 
because Isaac said something like this this is not a bad movie it's just maybe not what you want it to be like I kind of feel weirdly similarly about like but I judge it differently um going back to Armageddon like that's a perfectly fine movie serviceable for what it's trying to do totally entertaining but because it's Michael Bay and looking at Michael Bay's work even up to that point or even going after that point you don't go to Michael Bay movies and take it super serious like you do like a Christopher Nolan movie or whomever it's just Michael Bay crazy action hot babes you know whatever but you don't like break down the science and how does this even work on this meteor and or asteroid and um you know like all these things don't make like it's just like eh, nah you just don't judge it like that because it's michael bay so yeah i think like yeah we're holding it to a whole crazy different level because it is james cameron and because it's not his first movie you know us talking about this kind of reminds me even further of our discussion back with the Godzilla Earth Trilogy stuff <laughs> and how there's a lot of techno babble in that and again this wants to be like a very hard science fiction film that has a message about like you know an- that is anti-cold war and nuclear war of course to extension and again it's just missing the piece what Caleb in those films at least the, that first film did you like about that like in comparison to this I mean, in what way do you mean? Like, I, I wasn't fully controlling your comparison. That, that's that's fair. So, you know how, like, again, this is trying to be a... The Abyss is trying to be a very, like, hard hard science fiction morality tale uh, with a message in it being anti-Cold War, nuclear war. And, and Godzilla Earth trilogies has some similar themes to that. And so I'm just wondering how come that film those films work and this one for you doesn't is it that's that's a good question is it is it like character what is it the characters in this kind of fall flat whereas those characters had a very strict like those were very strongly written characters or they had more dimensions to them than these characters did yeah and I, I don't know I'm, I'm sure some people and i know actually some people call the characters and that archetypes as well without that much development to them i don't necessarily agree um, but I think that things are just a lot less muddy. Like, I knew the motivations of all the characters, and I felt like the motivations developed in a way that felt natural. Um, and I felt like I understood the threats. I don't really understand the understand the threat here. So Michael Bean wants to go and destroy Humans these... Humans are the threat, I think, to each other, I think is the threat. And, and But then there's the over-bigger looming threat of... So there's the immediate threat of the human conflict, and then there's the looming threat of then the humans being judged for that, for who they are. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) There's just something about it that feels (laughs) nebulous. I mean, the Cold War in general was kind of nebulous in a way. Very much so. But having this weird kind of in-between with the aliens, it just plays weird to me. There's just something about it. Wait, what do you mean? This in between with the aliens, because the aliens maybe again because the director's cut, like they're in there watching it, and then at the end they're like, "We're gonna solve this problem, we're gonna step in, and we're gonna say, okay, if the only thing that these under- people understand is mutually assured destruction, then we're gonna threaten to destroy them, and then tell them, hey, we can destroy you too if you don't act right." 
Then they're all happy. Yeah. Oh, it looks like we're going to be okay now. Like, there's something about that. The message just doesn't seem to connect right. It seems like... So your solution is to have another threat step in and say, we'll destroy you if you don't stop threatening to destroy yourselves. Something about that just seemed weird. Hm. Yeah. Wait, but isn't that how, like, the asteroid movies work in general, conceptually? Um, or, right. like, or, like, don't look up? Um, like, again, it's, like... But where's the commentary there? Or because I saw it recently, that famous little, like, the Blue Planet... Um, quote deal by Carl Sagan. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, no. you can find it on YouTube. It's like three minutes long, and he talks about the planet Earth, and the visual is just the camera being closer on Earth and zooming out the whole time. And he talks about how, you know, everybody who ever lived in history, every human, you know, all lived on this on this planet, and Every good thing, every bad thing, every conflict, everything, you know, all the things that humans have done, da 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 da. But as it keeps pulling out, um, the message overall is that, like, look at this tiny speck and hmm. all this ridiculousness that, that we're focused on when we're just, like, less than a piece of dust in the, in the grand universe of things. Um, and well, I guess he's trying to say, like, how petty all our squabbles are on this planet in the grand scheme of things. Um, yeah, let me say this. This, this. this is one of the things that I find weird about the movie. So I get the sense that maybe the kind of interplay between the regular folks working on this oil rig versus the military types and the hyper-paranoid coffee is supposed to be kind of how the, the regular people are living under this this threat of the Cold War. Oh, here we are, we're kind of powerless, these military types who are crazy. Every corner they see the enemy and they just want to destroy the, destroy the enemy and maybe destroy themselves. And we're just the people stuck in the middle. Okay. So it seems weird that the way that they solve the coffee issue is by killing him. And the way that the movie ultimately solves the Cold War is by a greater threat. Being like, if you don't stop that, we're going to kill you too. There's something about that that just seems like a strange message. It doesn't seem to. It doesn't really seem to have any sort of real resonance to it. It just seems like, oh well, what are we gonna do? We don't have any aliens to step in to stop save us from this cold war. I guess should we kill out all the military types? I see what you're saying, but see, not only are all those connections very real and present, the all the ones you just stated, um, but then there's also, well, <laughs> of course, what? Well, minus the aliens, but <laughs> sorry. No, yeah, but the, there's also, of course, in the back of your mind, somewhere, um, the very, like, obvious connections to, like, biblical-type stories, you know. it's uh, I mean, how can you not think about, like, the flood? And how can you not think about, like, God passing judgment on humankind, like, in the Old Testament multiple times? You know what I mean? Like, how can you not think about that in the back of your mind, um, with all these things that you're talking about in reference to the Cold War vis-a-vis -vis this movie. Like, well, those are... Okay, because there's two big things. There's the obvious references to the Flood. Um, and you like you said, like, it's weird that the threat is, okay, there's these evil military types, but then we're going to kill them. But then, ultimately, someone much bigger is going to kill us all. I mean, but that's like, like how the Old Testament works, too. And I'm, 
I'm not saying that's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I mean, there's obviously a connection there with that setup. Well, I'll say uh, maybe it's just my uh, my retirement from Christianity for so long, but I definitely wasn't thinking anything of the uh, Oh my gosh. Flood. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 I mean, Cameron had to think, yeah, this is what people are going to be thinking. Like anybody who takes this movie seriously. Um, you, you can't, like, escape that type of um, parallel, especially if you watch the director's cut. Um, yeah. You know, that's pretty much what it's all about. And then, and then it pulls from the other big theme in the Bible after that, where we're all saved by, like, someone who represents the messianic figure. It's it's really on the nose. Yeah, and again, I mean, I feel like a lot, a lot of these issues for me would have been remedied if it didn't have that corny 80s, like, cheery ending where they're all happy. Like, oh, everything's solved now. And the fact that it was uh, Bud's love for his wife, that was the, uh, and I guess his self-sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. To me. Exactly. That, that plays so, so false. Like, it, there's nothing about that that feels genuine it just feels like it's contrived for an audience to uh to have their hearts soften and to leave with a few tears in their eye well hold on i again i can't think i can't think of the exact examples but i feel like this has been done so many times like in doctor who and in star trek oh god new doctor who it's it's all over the place and it's terrible there too (laughs) yeah especially new doctor who as well but where it's like oh my god humans are so bad oh we need to get rid of them but then again, like with Q, that's what Q is always about. I mean, judging mankind, he's doing it's the same thing. It's like the same riff on the same theme. But with Q, um, can you prove their worth? Q would never threaten complete destruction, like earnestly. Q would do it as like a joke or just like flippantly, like, oh, you know, this race is so meaningless to me. Maybe I'd destroy you if you didn't uh, please me in some way. These aliens are a little too self-serious for me. This in the movie itself is a little too self-serious for me. Like it feels like it maybe thinks its message is a little bit more prescient or a little bit more important than I feel like it actually plays. Yeah, and again, this is proto Avatar in that way, and, yeah. and I understand that argument when people raise that same argument on Avatar. I get it, um, but I mean, yeah. And again, I. I don't want to knock the movie too much. There, are, There's plenty of stuff that I really like in it. Again, I love underwater settings. I, I think a lot of that stuff does work well enough. Um, I think Michael Bean is the big standout. I think a lot of his kind of uh, descending into craziness. Man, you love Michael Bean. I do love him. I think he's fantastic. <laughs> and I really love him in this. Um, I just wish that the writing had served him a little better. It's It works a little bit better in the director's cut because there's a very clear like he snaps he he doesn't it's not like a light switch like it is in the theatrical cut it's like anytime his authority is questioned you can see just a little bit of his his sanity chipping away and they do a lot of scenes where there's some sort of conflict that he's in the middle of and everyone else just kind of moves around him and undermines him and that's what eventually leads him to snap so it works better in the the director's cut but in the theatrical it just it feels like a light switch to me Hearing you talk about that, I wonder how much it's reflected or not in the film, but uh, um, just in the, um, like, unintentionally, but but still (laughs) present. No, well, like, because you reminded me, he was another person who was really pissed off 
during the production of this movie. Um, and at one point he said that they there because um, a lot of the the major underwater scenes were shot in I, I can't remember if it was North or South Carolina, but in one of the Carolinas. Uh, ironically, it was all all the major underwater stuff was shot um, in these tanks in a in a I think it was a, a never finished, never used like it was intended. It was the place where they did it was going to be like a nuclear re, uh, reactor. Um, but they never finished it. They never completed it. They never used it. And so ironically, the big water tank was actually the cooling tank designed for the reactor. So that's like weirdly ironic for like the overall themes of the movie (laughs) that that's where they made it. But Michael Bean said that he was there on location for like five months in the Carolinas, but only did maybe three three weeks of actual shooting himself so he was freaking like pissed and going like out of his mind that he was there for five months in total for like three weeks of actual working wow that's crazy (laughs) so i wonder if any of that came across in his in his performance whether he was channeling any of that or not (laughs) (laughs) no but isaac again i never really got an answer on what you thought of the military side of the the movie there well, I guess I could say it's poorly written <laughs> and a little bit one side. I mean, again, it is. Uh, I don't want to bring it up again. And again, this is its own film. But you could see that while people think Cameron has a real grip on how to write military characters, you then flash forward over to Avatar and you're like, what is this? And you could say mm. those aren't exactly like American military. They're just like a paramilitary group. Okay, but still, wouldn't they have like some sort of professionalism? Wouldn't they have like a chain of command? Wouldn't there be, again, discipline in that? And all of a sudden, the discipline's here. The idea is that cut off from because of the uh, the incident that cuts off communications between the ship above and then the oil rig down here. This isolation is like causing. Um, coffee's mind to deteriorate and they don't exactly go into that do they and that's another thing they don't go into I think as well pardon me if I'm projecting here is the idea of their living down here and everybody seems to be fine that's the other thing is that all the oil riggers they all seem to be getting along very well because they have a community they all seem to be going well with each other that's the whole thing in like space where the the worry of space uh, is that like the isolation up there you don't feel human um, but down here in like the primordial soup where we first like were created, um, there, there's somehow bonds. I'm making no sense. I get that. But like maybe he doesn't have that same bond with his com- comrades, even though he technically should. But again, he's not written that way. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I think. <sighs> okay. Go ahead, Eric. I, I, I want to say something. Let me take some drugs and then let me go off the rails. <laughs> oh, go ahead. No. Um, so again, you know, having the scars in Cameron's mind of like the Vietnam conflict, and to take that analogy further, and just listening to what Isaac just said. I mean, you can look at these characters representing in Cameron's mind, him being the writer, the the oil riggers. 
as being like the antithesis of the soldiers who fought in Vietnam who did the war atrocities. Like if you look at if you look at the soldiers from that angle in, in Vietnam, if you focus on that extremely negative element of them, uh, that the oil riggers represent the antithesis to that, which in the real world in the United States would have been like um, pacifist uh, hippies, like even living on a on a commune, on a co-op or something. You know what I'm saying? And and they kind of represent like the idolized version of that. Now we all know if you study that stuff, that stuff wasn't all, you know, peaches and daisies. But but idealistically, you could picture them as being that perfect human commune where everyone lives like a family and we all get along and we're all in this together and we're pacifists, you know, and then the military comes in. And so you could see this as like a clash between a military squad out of a Vietnam era time or movie clashing with the hippies and and how they wouldn't get along. And there has to be an element of that in the back of Cameron's mind. Mm. And then take it even further, if you want to get nuts, like with Avatar. Now this is where I go off the deep end, and I'm not saying this is what Cameron's <laughs> really thinking. This is just me being stupid. But because I was reading a review, I, I was, oh, no, I was watching this this Instagram channel uh, the other day or account. And I, I see this every now and then on Instagram accounts and TikTok accounts. People who are obsessed with anti-colonialism. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look at and you can look at those those um, O riggers as like the indigenous people of this underworld land. And then you can look at the military types as like the imperialist um, colonizers who just like come in with their own ideas and, you know, hey, you indigenous people, you're either with us or against us in in our goals that don't necessarily have anything to do with you. Um, So you can look at this if you wanted to. If if we were like in anti-colonial studies, I could do like a whole paper and presentation on this and and how the abyss represents colonialism and, and the evils of the the corporate military machine. Um, What's your opening thesis statement on that? <laughs> <laughs> I go, you know, uh, it it started with the monolith and the cave people. It ended with the Federation and the Borg, or the Doctor <laughs> and the Cybermen. Um, In the middle, there was the abyss. <laughs> yes somewhere in all the middle of that it was the abyss uh, yeah because something else i was going to say earlier um when kid was talking about what kind of movie this is um like spielbergian and this and that but it's also and of course you mentioned 2010 which 2001 was heavy on my mind the whole time because i thought this is a smart take because cameron is making his 2001 movie just like interstellar was nolan's 2001 movie He's making his 2001 movie, but he's looking inward rather than outward hmm. because he's taking it into the earth uh, as opposed to Interstellar, which is like literally the opposite of that, going far, far away. Um, and I, I think, and also, um, not only does he draw from Kubrick's 2001, but there, we were dancing all around it. Uh, we're still dancing around it. There's so many elements of 
of um, Doctor Strangelove. Tons, tons of Doctor Strangelove elements. Um, and and this is what I like about the interesting directors, whether it's Nolan or Peter Jackson or whoever you want to name. Because um, I always feel like Kubrick is like the original canvas and then everyone does their versions of and their interpretations of like the types of of great films that he established Kubrick and then everyone does this is my version of that and my version of this and my version of the shining and and this and that and and so this is like Cameron's take on like Dr. Strangelove 2001 and in his space anti anti-war anti-establishment um like big movie and, it, and it's it's so damn bold um it's something mm-hmm. that someone like Cameron would do that he would do that like aim for that but at the same time he's like kind of like in an he, he is like a proto nolan just like i think um uh uh oliver stone is like a proto um tarantino um that like he's doing so many things of what nolan does except just in his cameron way which is i want to have big ideas big messages but I also want it to be like a mainstream blockbuster at the same time. Um, it's like I want it all. Um, and that's kind of like what Nolan does, except through his own lens. Um, and that's what I kind of think this is. Um, because he's trying to have something for the intellectual egghead types who want to think real deep about something. But then he also wants it to be like a crowd-pleasing mainstream movie at the same time. He wants it all. Kind of like Star Wars, too, with Lucas. Yeah, and I will say, uh, when I used to watch this uh, when I was younger, because um, I did have this on uh, DVD, and I watched this a lot, um, I don't know, when I was like 12 to maybe like 16 or so, I watched this a lot, and I really liked it back then. Um, and, I, and I think at that time I was just watching it as like just, a, just another kind of blockbuster thriller kind of movie. And I could really enjoy it on that level. It's just looking at it now and kind of looking at what Cameron was trying to do as a as a story that I feel like it really doesn't hold up as well as I would have expected it to, which disappoints me. But but I think there's still a lot of, of good aspects to it. One of his weaker efforts. Yeah, it's like talking about the Star Wars prequels. Like Lucas <laughs> wanted to put all these ideas he wanted to put all these like political ideas into it and symbolism and and you know reflecting kind of like the cold war and and republican american conservatives of of the 80s he kind of like wanted to have all those things in there but then he also wanted to make an entertaining star wars adventure movie at the same time and obviously there's been countless discussions about (laughs) how well he accomplished his goals with just like the prequel trilogy it's the same kind of thing yeah, but I did want to point out some of the, the other stuff that I really do think is great in this. I think all the scenes in the sunken sub are fantastic. I really love the, the visuals there and the, the kind of intense way that some of the characters respond to that, especially Jammer. I think his scene where he sees his uh, his angel is a really cool scene. Um, I agree with like most of that, what you just said, but I just hated how stupid the thing happened with the rope 
um, getting mm. caught, and then and then him um, bashing his uh, his uh, yeah, like oxygen tank, humongous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when he freaked. Oh god, I don't know. It was just it was like Django Fett, like getting his head cut off. It's like kind of frustrating, <laughs> kind of stupid because his jetpack faltered. Uh, Isaac, did you uh, did you like any of those scenes? Well. To be fair, they did make mention of his CO2 levels being um, pretty high beforehand. Yeah. So, uh, before that, obviously the rope thing you can say is, is contrived, but there was, I'm pretty sure that this entire movie, save for obviously a few things, was set up. There are lots of things set up. I'm not going to go through anything, any of them because we're more talking about Cameron and less than this movie. But I also want to point out that, um, what do you call it? I, I, I went past the scene of when the pseudopod slash water camera, whatever you want to call it, um, comes into the ship or comes into the rig. And then I saw clearly that Michael Bean's character stared right at it and was horrified. And I thought, wait a second. Classic cosmic horror. I just saw this in uh, a similar movie. Where as soon as you see something like horrifying, you take sanity damage, call Cthulhu style. I'm like, wait, this thing came from the abyss. He looked directly into the abyss, and he blinked. Aha! Maybe that's where he starts losing it. As soon as he sees um, these may or may not be alien technologies. Well, interesting. Well, yeah, he was losing it before that, and then he just went yeah. completely berserko like at that yeah. point he got he completely cracked it's that very next scene when Lindsay's like humiliating him yep like oh did that look like a russian to you and under Pretty the table much. he's cutting himself he, he can't even respond he can't even talk anymore at this point it's after that that he starts like repeating himself we gotta take steps uh we gotta take steps he's just like twitching <laughs> where his authority <laughs> is being challenged and thus you yeah. know he's gotta do something um, completely ostentatious just to again remain like he's in command and that these people aren't listening to him even though he's supposed to be a leader of this entire operation even though it was I don't know if he was in charge of civilians or whatnot, but it's for an argument later yeah that part's wavery and see he and he's reminding me of like oh, I don't know was he a colonel in Doctor Strangelove the the one who's going like nuts on the on the military base. Oh, uh, I think he's a general. Is he a general also? I'm trying to remember his name. But you know, um, but like, cause cause he's completely cracked too, uh, obviously. But I'm saying like, Michael Bean was like channeling his character, and then a bit of of Scott too. General Mangrove, maybe he had some sort of. They all have funny names. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, something like that. I'll find out soon. Um, but I also wanted to, to highlight, um, I think in the theatrical cut, a lot of the like the side characters of Bud's crew don't really stand out except for Hippie. Um, but I think in the director's cut, I really appreciate all the time that they spend just kind of living with these people. Um, there's a scene where uh, Bud, Hippie, and then the other female character one night, they all like to sing this song together. Isaac, I'm sure you saw that. I, I really like that scene. I'm singing Willen. Yeah, I thought that was a really charming scene, and 
it just just made them feel like a, a group that have been working together for a long time and actually appreciate each other which i didn't necessarily feel as much in the theatrical cut no i i agree i i did enjoy a lot of the character aspects and i was kind of hoping there'd be actually a little bit more in uh the director's cut but we didn't get that but i think yeah what was there was was necessary um i pretty i think they pretty much got every single character covered in that at least the ones that survived yeah. which is at least nice um so yeah i'll just say general wise and not i won't go into very very small details because you don't want me to i don't at this point you don't you don't want to hear me say that but yeah it was i was very impressed with that well i don't i don't mind i okay um well i like the fact that um cat was in the uh marine corps um because he had you can clearly see you usmc um on his tattooed on his arm wait no yeah united states marine. yeah united states marine. so that was a little uh interesting uh, that was a little neat feature there um hippie is just steve buscemi prototype like that's all i could that's all i thought of when i saw that character um one night stand can't believe her name was her last name's standing so it was like her middle her nickname's one night i'm like are you kidding me that's this movie what is this movie oh my god that's what the names are like in avatar when we go through those yes <laughs> again this is like i don't want to go for, again we don't I, I, we should not be talking about avatar and we really do talk about this but this is really just proto avatar they are very similar. so people say like if if people don't like if you don't like avatar you're not going to like this movie you will not like this movie uh there's no unobtainium plot thankfully and there's no like space indigenous people but there is this which was again james cameron trying to do drama and you're just like James Cameron, just stick with like action pieces. That's all you're good at. <laughs> ah, I'm okay with it. It, it. I mean, there's fault and it's clumsy, and it's not as um, well done as like the Space Marines. But I, I'm okay with it in general. In, in in all these Cameron pieces we're talking about. Um, I like but that's just me. Right, right when um, Coffee pulls that gun on. Bud when he's trying or Virgil when he's speak sneaking up on him to like take him out. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. love the fact that he he cocks the gun, nothing happens, and then we cut to Monk, uh, the other Navy SEAL, and he pulls out what I thought was a grenade and pulls it. I'm like, you are insane. And then it's just the uh, magazine with all the rounds in it, and I'm like, Cameron, you absolute genius. I love you for that. That maybe that's not a good setup or whatnot but that was a really good payoff of like it was a great explanation I, I don't know why well see i actually had a minor issue with that scene and maybe the characters didn't think about it but they were all worried like no bud what are you trying to do what, what are you sneaking up on him for you think that that guy might have leaned over and been like oh don't worry i took out the uh, the ammo in his gun so at least that's not uh so i thought that plate is a little bit i was like oh that guy's kind of an asshole but <laughs> that is fair but but I could see why it was a, a fun like reveal. Like obviously, if you think about the mechanics of the movie, it plays better Cameron's way. But uh, yeah, exactly. And, and and you can almost say, well, that's a terrible fake out, or why didn't they show that beforehand, set that up, um, <laughs> and, and or like notify him of that? Like why? Yeah, why didn't Monk tell uh, them about that? It's uh, a good question. Uh, I'm right now literally on the scene of like the the hand to hand fight, uh, mm -hmm. which I'm gonna assume you hated. Like just absolutely loathed and hated. Me? Um, yeah. No, I thought it worked. 
Really? Yeah, I thought it worked well enough. Okay, give me the, why 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 did you like that scene? Um, one, I love the room that they're in. I love that it opens up with coffee pulling on those chains and it's just clinking and he's he just looks so troubled. Like he's just sitting there doing whatever he's doing, just freaking out. I love that. Um, and th this is kind of random. Uh, but Ed Harris is whatever his little screams of like uh, like struggling whatever those sounds that he's making have always stuck in my head and anytime that scene plays I just start hearing his, his sounds in my head golly <laughs> interesting I'm seeing him right now as um, what's his name as Bean or as Coffee's choking him out with wires yeah it's a little hand to hand fight in a in a room that's like yeah surrounded by water half submerged in water what's not to love and Michael Bean's in it. <laughs> that's fair. I was I was half expecting you to say, um, no, that's trash. Because there's clearly like that that broken ceiling light that's like fixture that's like in between them that's dividing them. And you can clearly see like the camera. Not you can't see the camera, but you can tell like the camera's cutting between the both of them. But it's <laughs> not a bad fight though. I I do like the no. fight. It's a very different fight than you, you know, would see where it's like quickly edited and whatnot. And again, I just want to see James Cameron direct more like hand-to-hand -hand fight scenes. Oh, and of course, this is number three in that Michael Bean gets bit. First one was in Terminator <laughs> where Sarah Connor bit, bites him. Then in Aliens, Newt bites him. And now in this one, uh, Virgil bites him. That's funny. That's very funny. Running oh, gag. and I also love the fact that um, right when Cat um, is opening the bulkhead door that um, was jammed by coffee, uh, <laughs> Uh, Hippie's the one that like just bursts through and like slams the door like right into him. I was really hoping people kept doing that, and even though that was a stupid gag, but I was kind of hoping that that was the case. Oh, did, this hasn't occurred to me. It just I was just watching a scene and it made me think of it because a bunch of water was filling into the base. Did any of this make you think of Deep Blue Sea at all? Another underwater base, just a disaster. Should we just like say it by the way that um, well, you said there was four. There was four films. Uh, in the year 1989 that were similar to um, or that basically had like underwater expeditions uh, yeah. we know what the last one is but we have Abyss, what's the other one? yeah technically the last one came out in 90 okay uh, but um, yeah one of them we've covered on the podcast uh, Leviathan that's oh yeah Leviathan. that's number one that's that's a special one to us and yeah. I'm pretty sure that's probably just a rip off of this eh? Um, yeah, they, they all, it's all of that one, um, they were all kind of, this movie was, was talked about for a long time, it's this big, big budget kind of underwater spotlight movie, and see all these little cheapies were released, you know, the Italians got in there with Leviathan, Roger Corman got in there with Lords of the Deep, um, the same people who were making the Friday the 13th, like, oh, we're not making that anymore, let's go over and make, let's, uh, Deep Star 6. Sean S. Cunningham, who directed Friday the 13th, created that franchise, directed that movie. And then, like, a year later, another cheapy, uh, The Rift, came out. And they were all these yeah, undersea-based movies. And I think they're all fun, by the way. I think all of them are worth watching. Uh, my favorite is Lords of the Deep, the Roger Corman one. I think that movie's just crazy, but they're really fun. But, but this is obviously the best one. But <laughs> And I was even thinking, Isaac, uh, since we did Leviathan... I was like, ah, maybe one of these days we'll get around to covering those other three, and then we'll have this whole little series uh, put together. Well, this is hopefully not the halfway point through novice history, but, like, 
I know the last film, if if we ever end this series, I know exactly the last film we're going to watch. Leviathan. We're going to redo <laughs> Leviathan. That's our very last, that's the very last film we'll ever cover. Yeah, it is funny getting to this point, a little bit of full circle there. Yeah. It's, yeah, no, it's, yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah, and I'll say in the uh, build-up for this, I even went back and rewatched Lords of the Deep. Um, yeah, for, for whatever reason, I've always had a real uh, charm for that film. And I was just like, ah, I just want an excuse to rewatch that. So nice. So I'll probably be the next one I break out at some point. I think that thing's really funny. Um, what what else did you have on your on your notes? That was what I going to ask. Uh, kind of mirroring the scene with uh, when they're all singing along with uh, One Night. I also thought that the scene where Bud explains kind of his relationship to one night with Lindsay kind of gives their whole history um even though I was kind of thinking I was like well would one night not kind of know some of this I still thought it was helpful for the audience and, and kind of helped establish their relationship more which again I felt was really lacking in that a theatrical cut so I like that scene as well um <laughs> there's also this is kind of a small moment but at one point, Lindsay comes into the room and Bud's kind of snoring. She goes, turn your side, Virgil. And for whatever reason, that moment just rang really true. I thought that was a, a nice touch. It felt like a like a piece of reality seeping into the movie that that I felt had a lot of artificial elements in it. So, so that one stuck out to me as well. Interesting. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. This is random, but um, I wrote... Lindsay coming down to the rig. So when she initially comes down in the, with the marine or with the marine, sorry, with the seals, uh, she's coming down from community service. Why is that? Just because she's all of a sudden wearing a orange jumpsuit, and then after that she switches back to her like she's she's in formal attire, then she's in a community service jumpsuit, and then she like switches to normal civilian clothes. It's so weird. <laughs> and yeah, obviously we've alluded to it before, but. Armageddon stole this premise, except oil drillers on a platform drilling to the center of an asteroid to plant a nuke instead of retrieving it. Instead of make that point out. Um, oh, and of course, like I would be remiss to say, I, I, I said the film's op film opens up similar to Transformers 07. Once again, James Cameron stealing everything in that he can <laughs> without <laughs> without anybody realizing it, but he clearly like takes a lot from Alien again, uh, just in that. Um, we have an oil rig, and in that film it was a, I don't even want to, like a oil rig the size of Texas or something like that, if not bigger, um, being towed by the crew. Um, and so when they, like, when, when one night was hauling the entire, like, um, rig with the submersible, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, it literally is just like the Nostromo towing that entire like oil oil rig and platform i was like dang like what is what is what is it with oil i guess it is a you know it's a yeah primary source of of fuel so like we, we kind of need it um i'm watching the scene of the the dueling uh submersibles by the way i just realized mm -hmm. it's the it's like two power loaders slash the power loader versus the alien queen all over again that's kind of what yeah. it was reminding me of yeah, I'm watching that scene too. Yeah, Eric, what'd you think of that? Because I I felt like it went on way too long. Wait, which scene? Uh, the kind of chase between the two submersibles. Oh no, it was it was okay for me. I mean, it was a little bit nuts because 
Because <laughs> it was, it was like, wait, what is, like, what can they do other than play bumper cars? Yeah, yeah really. Like, it was weird. <laughs> like, I mean, when I thought about it, like, rationally. But otherwise, no, it was, it was cool just because it's kind of like something like out of a James Bond movie and, like, you know, they try to always come up with a unique type of mm. chase or whatever that you've never seen before. And so something like that, it's just, I don't know, it's just like, wow. Anyway, it's like the spectacle of it. I was okay with it. Like, like I said, to me, the movie goes by super fast, or it seemed, when I watched it this time. Yeah, and the uh, I actually really like the, the end of the chase, even though I think it goes on too long. I like when Michael Bean's just kind of looking at them, and they've all kind of, it's like they all have a moment of humanity at the end. Like, they, they kind of realize, oh crap, like, what were we doing all this for? Yeah, and then he just falls, and then the the pressure just destroys the thing. I think that part plays really good, but otherwise it just seems strange. It almost does feel like he he snapped out of the underwater pressure syndrome. That's that sounds stupid, but like it almost seemed like he he realized, you know, like a moment of clarity. Yeah, exactly. Like he he's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> it's like that. It's like that one King of the Hill episode where Michael Keaton guest stars. And he has that one moment where he like gets zapped because he's a psychopath. And he's like, "Oh, all of a sudden I feel normal." Like, "Wow, that's strange." And then he just dies. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, and that, of course, that that big chase ends in another moment of kind of uh, tension, which is Lindsay drowning herself and then her resurrection. How would you guys think of that bit? Complete and utter BS. <laughs> oh, really? Hmm. I'm pretty sure not. No, 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 I'm talking, like, scientifically speaking. Uh, even Why? if that is possible. Just, like, my, my, the science behind it makes sense, but I'm just like, there is no way you can, like, undrown a person. What? Oh, uh. <laughs> Wait a second. Or is this possible? It, Wait, am I, yeah. like, just an idiot? Okay, then. No, it is possible. Yeah. Oh. Okay, well, never mind. Then I'm an idiot, so I should go drown myself. It's what lifeguards are partly there, too, to do. Is to undrown people. Now wait a minute. Wouldn't her? Would I was more worried about the water in her brain, uh, because that's that's the problem as well. Well, the the water wouldn't go to the brain, but there'd be lack of oxygen to the brain. Yeah, depending on how long she's. It's the lack of oxygen is the issue. Okay, well. But. But they have a throwaway line to try to ease like the length of time that she's. Yeah. You know, effectually dead, where they talk about. The fact that it's the water temperature is so low will extend like her survivability. She goes into basic like hypothermia or not hypothermia. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Whatever it's called. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Not cardiac arrest. It's just like cryo sleep almost. Yeah, but no. It, this this is a thing. You can die. <laughs> you know, no breathing, no no pulse, and be brought back. Of course. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um. Just quickly, because I remember, what did you think the, the of, like, uh, Virgil, he, this is way back earlier in the movie, but when the, when the oil rig is initially flooding, uh, when he tries to go through the door, and all of a sudden, like, as he, as the door closes, he, like, sticks his hand through, and then he gets stopped by the ring. Oh. <laughs> I was like, that's a pretty fucking strong ring. That's, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, that's a durable ring, and I, I assumed, I, I knew, obviously, because it's James Cameron, he's a fan of setups, 
uh, I knew that he was um, using. He he did the initial like throw the ring in the toilet, not just for a gag, but like no, that's coming for later. Yeah, dang, that's that, that's something else. Sorry. To... Yeah, and as as a fan of disaster movies, I really like that sequence when everything's kind of going down and the ten- tension of if the crane was going to hit them. I thought that scene was really well directed and, and handled by all the cast. But that played really well. Yeah, that was good. Although I hated there was some part after the crane fell where there was like an explosion that blew open one of those airlock doors or I don't know what you call those doors, those pressurized doors. That was nuts to me that that door was like blown open and like off its hinges. Oh yeah. And then it like hit somebody. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm assuming that character died. Whoever it was. It was Monk. It was it was Monk. Oh, that was yeah, he's the nuts. one that comes back and betrays. Oh, but back to that um, that 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 first death resurrection scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. My idiocy. Uh, it's always stuck in my mind. It's always been one of the focal points of the movie. Me too. Ever since I saw that in this movie, I've always thought of that as being a way out of other situations. Um, like in other movies, like I know one person can just drown themselves intentionally and we'll just bring them back. Like I've, I've wanted to see that resolution like in other movies because this was in my mind. It's something that's always bothered me about Vespa dying or Vesper mm. dying mm. in Casino Royale and that why she couldn't be brought back to life like you've seen a million times in the other movies. Um, it seemed vastly doable in that movie. But you could say... I guess you could say that, like in this movie, like he says, no, but she wants to live. She has a strong heart. I guess you could make the argument that Vesper died of a broken heart, not of drowning. But anyway. (laughs) um, (laughs) But as much as I love that scene, and as much as to me it's iconic, um, and the the solution they come up with with their problem, I thought that it's all amazing. But once they get back onto the rig, and they start doing CPR, and they're doing the whole defibrillator, that is too drawn out. Yes, absolutely. That is nuts. It goes way too long. That needs to be shortened because it starts becoming like ridiculous. Like, 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 like they all stop for a moment, you know, and then like it's it, and like no man, it's it's, it's way too drawn out. And to me, I feel like the chase was too drawn out. I feel like the scene of Lindsay and Bud in the like damaged ship is a little too drawn out. And then, yeah, that one all in a row. And then him, almost immediately after that, is when we see him going down and typing out his messages. I feel like really by that point in the movie, it's it's starting to grind to a halt a little bit. And then being in the damaged ship, I, uh, I know one person hasn't seen that movie, but that definitely reminds me of that part in Endgame. Um, but I'll say no more <laughs> about that. But, um... Yeah. There's a couple other big things that we haven't discussed, which we should probably get to before we uh, get get to the end here. Um, one of those being the, the CGI water. We haven't discussed that. Yes, that's exactly. I was like, when's someone going to bring that yeah. up? I mean, it was brought up for like a hot second. I have been. Uh, it's called the su- It's called the pseudopod. And or like right. the, wa- the water. Well, we heard you mention it, but we haven't discussed the effect. Yeah, I heard you mention it, but okay. like no one, yeah, no one's actually talked about it. So when this, F, like... If this ever gets like ultra high definitioned, it's gonna look good. It's gonna look like they're gonna redo it. No, they're not. <laughs> what can I say? It's Proto T1000, but water. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> um, 
That's it. I thought there was more. <laughs> I thought there was literally going to be more than just that. And I don't mean what you guys are saying. I thought there was more because I knew that was something about this film where like they they did like this this face and they had to like uh, use laser laser scanning on both uh, Ed Harrison Mary whatever her name is um, face just to like you know get imprints of it. Uh, yes, it looks dated. I don't care. Like it is what yeah, it, it looks is. Cool. Like, for the time you would have believed like that was their face uh you because there was nothing like it at the time now obviously because cgi is overused and oversaturated of course it's going to look like primitive but i will defend it till the day i die just because well again <laughs> till the day you die yeah till the day i die because i'm overly dramatic <laughs> Yeah, you'll be on your deathbed and someone will come up to you. I just recently watched The Abyss, and man, that CGI was terrible. All right, well, so Oh, no, 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 no. Give me his deathbed, and his last dying word is going to be pseudopod. And there we go. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And they're going like, to go back on its whole life. Or a portal will go around to all his friends. So what does that even mean? They're going to see. When he, was, when he was little in in Canada, he had, he had a sled, and it was <laughs> named pseudopod. We have toboggans up here, by the way. Nobody there you go. has a sled. Nobody has a sled anymore. Toboggan emblazoned with the name Pseudopod. Um, uh, oh, no. Trust, I was there, guys. I mean, when this movie came out, the movies, people were talking about that effect for, like, the whole damn year. Like, no one oh, cared wow. about the movie per se. You know, it wasn't, like, this grand movie, like, oh, y'all have to go out and see this. But just talking about the special effect, I feel like that that was, like, for 12 months or more that it was all the That's talk. Cool. Um, oh my god. Yeah, it was like constantly like everywhere just talking about that effect. It was like in all the magazines. Um, and it's funny because a proto version of that effect um, let's not forget was done in like A Voyage Home. Um, <laughs> because we got to see like all the original crew have their faces like created with a, like an earlier version of that technology. Yeah, that's fair. I forgot about that. <laughs> then I guess yeah. we see the glob blood. Is it the next year? Or is it 91? With uh... Oh, it's 91. You talking about 91. that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 91. Um, but no, it was it was a massive, massive deal. Um, it really was. It was, it was as, as big as anything. It was... That was... Because there was prior CG. I mean, I just mentioned one. Uh... <laughs> Notably, there was notable CG in Young Sherlock Holmes um, and Star Trek II Wrath of Khan and, of course, Tron. Those were all notable CG things prior to this. Yeah, Future World. But this is the one. Future World? There was CG in that? Yeah, the Westworld sequel, yeah. One of the first uh, big CGI well, Yeah, I know the movie, sequences. but what was the... There's a whole computer. Uh, if you don't remember, I don't want to spoil it because Isaac, I know, is going to watch that at some point, so... Maybe we'll get to it. But I mean, day. if you're talking about like something with Vector or something like that, or I, I have no idea. <laughs> well, maybe we'll discuss it one day because yeah, I don't want to spoil that bit. But at least with CGI in the modern sense, um, and like I said, there was prior um, uses, but this is the one that like put it on on the map for everyone. Because with all those prior examples. People really didn't know what to call that or didn't really register, hey, this is CGI, CGI, CGI. Like, it wasn't, there wasn't all this fanfare around those previous attempts. This was the one 
that I think probably put that term or started to put that term CGI into the lexicon of people's minds, like the general audience. Like this started it and then like Jurassic Park cemented it. Like that whole concept. Well, and, and Terminator 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it did too, but but it was really... But I, yeah, I would still say Jurassic Park cemented it to where people understood like this is what it's capable of. Yeah, because T2 was more like a furtherance of this. And it was like, wow, yes. look how much you can do. And then exactly. Jurassic Park is like, holy fuck, you can do so much more. <laughs> it's really crazy like how quickly this stuff all happened. I mean, like this being in 1990, um, and then T2, and then um, uh, Jurassic Park, a slew of other things that looked weird, like like Jumanji. But then to culminate with like the CGI in 98 of Titanic... Like, man, a lot happened in eight years, <laughs> like, uh, with the whole technology there. And then it finally all culminates with the prequels and then Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but not to mention that in that span of 90 to 98, of course, um, uh, Toy Story came out in 95. Like, that's just bonkers. Yeah. That is completely bonkers. Uh, but there's at least two more things I got to mention before we get to final thoughts. I don't want to go too much longer since it's getting late for eric there uh one of the big ones being the rat scene where we have a rat on screen oh yeah 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 yeah. i want to talk about that too yeah really breathing uh fluid yeah and i didn't know that until two and a half hours ago um because i always thought it was a concept um and and nothing more like when they discuss it in the movie and then when they show the rat and and then when they actually of course use it like I thought that was all conceptual, and mm. even when I was watching it, the movie in preparation, I was like, "But this is not. This was never a real thing." Is what I was thinking when just watching the movie yesterday and today, and then I just learned that two and a half hours ago. Holy shit! I had no idea. Um, and apparently, yeah, yeah and, I, and I had no idea because when I was watching the rat scene earlier today. I was like, yeah, how do they do this? Like, do they actually kill a rat? Like, that's what I was thinking. Like, did they kill it? Um, or did they do, like, what they did with with Lindsay's character? Like, kill it and revive it? Like, for the filming or whatever? Um, but I had no idea that it was actually breathing that actual real fluid. And that was the real thing. And then something else I just learned 15 minutes ago, <laughs> looking at IMDb. So... During that scene, do you know why like they show the rat drowning or not drowning but taking in the water? Well, yeah, drowning uh, in its mind. Um, yeah. Do you know why there's a, 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 a an edit cut right there where it goes from the rat to their faces and then back to the rat? No. <laughs> well, apparently, because when the rat, you know, during filming was you know taking in the water and, and freaking out like it like defecated all over like inside the the um the dish so they had to have an edit cut so we don't see all the all the defecation (laughs) um as it freaks out yeah fun fact fun fun shitty fact yeah another fun fact is uh this movie the whole the whole concept for it started as a short story for james cameron that he wrote in high school because uh some diver he went to go see uh, like a lecture by this diver, and he was the first human to breathe liquid. It was like a early 70s, so that 
And it's never really been developed much at this point, but... He had a bunch of influences. The first one, supposedly, chronologically, was when he was younger or in high school. I don't know. Younger. Um, he read a, a short story by H.G. Wells about some scientists that, that go on a deep dive um, and then run into some type of extraterrestrial creature or whatever. So he that inspired him when he was younger. And then... He, he saw that what you just spoke of but then he also saw like in their in the early 80s um, like a National Geographic special where they showed um, some oil riggers like at the bottom of the sea um, so like all these things came together um, for him um, for him to ultimately decide to do this for like his third movie it was like this confluence of uh, of inspirations. And I was going to say, too, like, you were saying a lot of this stuff was tacky with, like, the Cold War notes um, of the film, which, yeah, I get it. But, but, you know, we had a whole slew of Cold War. It's almost like its own genre of itself in the 80s. (laughs) Um, And and this really distinguishes, distinguishes itself in that group of films. And it is quite remarkable that it came out right at the right time. I mean, right when, in effect, the Cold War was ending. Like, that's all very interesting timing. Oh, I almost wondered if that was bad timing. So it's kind of like, oh, the whole point of this movie is about the Cold War, but the Cold War is winding down. Like, is it going to have less of an impact? Is it going to feel antiquated? Uh, no, I thought it was. I thought it was like perfect. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know. The only other way it could be more perfect if, if it was like a movie about the wall literally coming down, and it did, <laughs> like almost right away. Oh, but I did want to comment on the uh, the rat scene. I always thought that was cool. I because I'd watched the bonus behind the scenes stuff, I knew that that was a uh, like a real scene of the rat doing that. And I don't know, it, it like I'm sure that rat did not have a good time filming that scene. Like it makes me think a little bit of uh, the Andromeda Strain. Where Robert Wise was suffocating animals, and then they would revive them quickly. They, they would get them suffocated, and they would like pass out. And it, that uh, I don't know. It's I'm got I'm glad we moved away from that kind of stuff. It it doesn't seem. Uh, huh. I know it was more the norm at the time, but it's uh, it seems a little fucked up to me. Like they wouldn't. I mean, they could have had Ed Harris try it too. They knew it was they knew it was okay, but I'm sure he would refuse. And I'm sure the rat. Didn't want to do it either, so. <laughs> I know, I'm sure Isaac probably has uh, those those similar kind of thoughts on that scene. So, I got a lot to unpack with just, like, the liquid oxygen here, or at least the breathable liquid here. Hmm. So, they, fun fact, funner fact, which I almost revealed when Eric was like, dude, did you know this? No, Eric, did you know that they didn't just film one rat they filmed five rats doing oh wow no i didn't know that but it doesn't it doesn't shock me it doesn't shock you and then and then apparently apparently uh they somebody was talking with somebody one of the i think maybe the um steve buscemi looking guy was talking to somebody and word got out and then apparently Johnny Carson of all people was like, "Hey, we want the rat on the on the late night show." 
on the Tonight oh, Show. come on. And then he's like, sorry, the rat un uh, coincidentally had died from, uh, I guess, um, old age uh, just a few months back. And they're like, sure it did. It yeah, drowned. That it's like they, they had vets look over all five rats. Nothing wrong happened, apparently. Obviously, mental scarring. I they just they just said in the documentary that it was um, mental scarring. Second, Caleb, does the suit, the space suit that Bud wears or Virgil wears, excuse me, um, hmm. does it remind you of kind of the experimental spacesuits in? Uh, I think it was Stink Bomb in Memories. Oh my god. No, I did not think of that. I definitely did not think no, of that. No, because that was immediately... That's where my mind immediately went. And oh, wow. third, <laughs> so I have known about breathable liquid for... I'm not going to say a long time, but since I'd say 2017. Because if you're a fan of Neon Genesis Evangelion, it is one of the main features in that series where the children, when going into the giant mechs, uh, the tubes that they go into are filled with uh, breathable liquid. I think it's called LCL. Um, <laughs> and it's basically breathable liquid. Now, on in that show, which was 1995, by the way, so it clearly stole from this. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Could have been influenced. Yeah, most likely. Um, they weren't breathing as hard as, as Virgil and the rat were, which is true because the reason with... Uh, breathable liquid is that it's much much denser than air so you really <gasps> have to take in way deeper breaths because we sure. you, know, you need our, our bodies require oxygen and this kind of has a lack of it but and in fact apparently <laughs> creates more co2 than we would uh, generally so yeah. that's why it's kind of used less but for the science fiction aspect of it, I think a lot of scientists would give this, I mean, not a pass, but, or at least um, would give it a thumbs up. Okay, at least they knew what they were doing. Yeah, and it's, it, I would have never known about it, except for this movie. It created interest in me. And I've always been curious to see it be developed, but I think maybe the discomfort of it has just kept it away from really seeing much future. So, so that that's too bad. It's just more R&D. It just really needs to be more R&D, and we'll find a solution of some sort of compound that will be close to, if not a few molecule, molecules away from air, where it's not as dense uh, mm. as, as what it is in this movie, where it's at least humans are able to uh, breathe in it. Um, again, as close to air as it can, but again, we just have to keep R&D over and over, and that's how you, that's how you like, get things to its like perfected state or at least usable state i can't remember if in interstellar if when they go into sleep do they put on a, a, a breathing apparatus or do they just go into that water they go into that water i don't remember if there was as far as i'm aware there wasn't any breathing tubes yeah maybe yeah, there was like so a breathing that's... tube but i don't remember if it was like that though but it's still interesting like i don't know because i don't know what that is or where that concept comes from like in that movie yeah and now we've arrived at my final note um which is a big issue for me throughout the movie um and that is our old buddy alan silvestri and his oh. score for this thank you you read some of the things that i wrote down in my head <laughs> yes 
I don't like it at all. No, it's and it's it's really corny, really Murray Goldish, in a number of the oh. sappier <laughs> bits. Murray Gold would have. So I don't better. like that. Um, it, it definitely feels like a score from the late '80s, and not in a good way. And worse than that, he directly rips several pieces uh, straight out of Predator, like the scenes where, uh, like the cranes coming down. That music is just completely ripped from Predator. It's the same music. It's, and that's just like, oh wow, wow. <laughs> like Horner, Silvestri is one of those guys who, especially in the, in the '80s and '90s very much like self-referential self-plagiarizing very much so um yeah, but apart from his his sappier bits where i think is the worst stuff the scene where Lindsay is uh being resuscitated he does this thing where he plays like the same two notes over and over again for like for tension feels like a piece of like er music or something and i think that that is just kind of embarrassing for for a person of his kind of a catalog of scores i thought that piece was just lazy and just bad <laughs> it's so bad the whole thing it's it's so derivative it's so it sounds like a temporary score yes <laughs> um, oh my god it's really bad like it may it, you know it's unfortunate that i guess they had that falling out after aliens um that the james horner score i could just imagine would just be amazing it'd be james horner derivative but it would still be amazing oh, i wish i'm sure there's a fan edit somewhere where someone just took pieces of horner score and like put it on top of this movie um and like frankenstein did um oh, it's yeah. just bad and i think i could like the movie more if it didn't have that score oh i agree like there's moments in it where i just find distracting where i'm like oh i almost wish i could just turn down the sound on this like that scene when Lindsay's being resuscitated like it just detracts from the whole scene. <laughs> That's how I felt about certain parts of the Kenobi series score. Mm. There was some parts that I found totally derivative and totally generic Star Wars music. Ugh. That's that's completely fair. <laughs> uh, any thoughts, uh, Isaac? Before I move into uh, final thoughts, there. I do. I have the complete opposite opinion of you guys. I very much enjoyed the score. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Because, okay. a, because you know, again, I'm a moron because I don't know the fact well, that you can drown what? somebody and in icy water. And why didn't they do that in Titanic? Oh wait, because it's 1912. And yeah, no one's yeah, exactly. They hadn't. They didn't know. 1914. That, sorry. Well, I almost cor corrected myself. Correction. 1914. Pardon me. Doesn't make you an idiot. <laughs> was it 14? Wait, maybe it was 12. I thought it was 12. Maybe it was 12. Never mind. I, think it's, I, think it's I also thought it was 12, but you know, I don't know. Hang on. Well, what would you like about the music? Just as a... Since, since you said you liked it. Alright, never mind. April 15th, 1912. I was right. Okay. Well, I'm still a moron. Anyways. Um, so, yeah. one. Uh, obviously, uh, I have not listened to a lot of Alan Silvestri scores. I know for a fact, obviously, I heard very faint but similar orchestral cues and or instruments to back to the future but there was no medley of back to the future and the biggest one of all i did not hear anything resembling the avengers assemble theme so this wow. automatically gets a pass from me that's how <laughs> idiotic i am oh man 
I was gonna say I like the assemble theme. Oh no, I, I do. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like. Oh yeah, it sounds different this because does, this doesn't. Yeah, this has sounds nothing like it. That stuff that he did in the MCU like totally redeemed his career because I thought he could only do '80s esque scores until until amazingly he produced something different for the MCU stuff. Yeah, and again, it's not it's not just the fact that a lot of it's repetitive. It's the fact that it's no, so no, no, no. corny. Like, it, it just reeks of, like, this really obvious, like, feeding into your emotions. It sounds, it's amateurish. Yeah. Hackish. Feels like Murray Gold. <laughs> oh, no. I still think Murray Gold would have done better. Amateurish. <laughs> feeding into your emotions. Hackish. Oh, that all describes Murray Gold, but sorry. <laughs> yeah, but Murray Gold is catchy. <laughs> this is not, it's not catchy. And there's almost a whining element to some of the music too which just, <laughs> but maybe that's just me and my, my negative ways <laughs> but i'm glad you liked it eyes like i'm sure that made it easier to uh to go with the movie as well i wish i liked it but <laughs> no that's fine it, uh it's just you know i think like i could see it being a little better i could also almost see like it was more like a rough draft at the same time but i did enjoy for where it was it's it's almost like how do i put this like like the the script this needed a longer time like this needed uh, another write over uh, with, with yeah. music excuse me again very hard for both to you know create but uh fair enough i i i do understand what both of you are coming from i can put myself in your guys' shoes and see uh from your guys' opinion so yeah i i understand that yeah i was gonna say that almost sound like your final thoughts of your kind of summary for the movie in general I guess I'll just go with that in that, like, this film is flawed in many ways, but this is objectively not a, like, bad film. Um, it's competent, but again, all the behind-the-scenes stuff does make it... Not, not, okay, that, that's one part that makes it conflicting, and then also the fact that this may be just, like, draft one also is conflicting. Yeah, for, for my final thoughts, um, I, I think that the theatrical cut is Cameron's weakest movie. I really do think that so much of it feels very unpolished. Um, the director's cut improves a lot of those elements, but it's still... I just think from the outset, he had kind of a weird mindset with this movie, and it didn't... A lot of the ideas were not thought out in a way that really came across well on screen. But I think a lot of the acting and a lot of the, the sets and the, the beautiful water environments, I think all that stuff's great, and the, the alien design... And of course, Michael Bean. I just I find him so charming on screen. So, <laughs> so I enjoy his villain. But definitely, this will be one of the. It'll be very close to the bottom on my list of his his movies when we get to the end. But about you, Eric. Um, this movie actually, even outside of the James Cameron catalog, it just it's one of these movies because of when I saw it and what I thought about it, even though I didn't fully understand it. Um, I mean that's how. It's a similar relationship I had with um, Close Encounters. Because even though I saw that before this movie, when I was even younger, same kind of experience. Like, I always liked watching Close Encounters, but I never understood what the fuck was going on um, in that movie. <laughs> like, for large swaths of it. And no fucking clue. Um, but it has a special place um, because of my age and the time and everything. And I do think it's it's a 
by general audiences, I think it's a it's a forgotten, overlooked film, and it it shouldn't be. Um, I actually think it's I actually think overall it's a really really good movie. Actually, I think it's a it's a it's like a flawed. I think it's a flawed masterpiece or, or flawed, really good film, actually, um, and it has a significant place for me. It's one. It's been one of the white whales of acquiring <laughs> in the in yes. the modern day of physical media. Um, for me as well, <laughs> on Blu-ray and on 4K, if this ever happens. Apparently, they were finishing it up in 2019, um, but then as but then you know Disney. Have bought um, 20th Century Fox, and when they took over, no one has heard a thing. Like, oh wow, re-release or whatever. Um, but I, one day, there's always rumors that it will surface. <laughs> no pun intended. And um, no, I, I I rate this movie highly. It's really significant up there. Um, and uh, um, and yeah, and nobody mentioned Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott? Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe I'm missing who this is. Let me look him up. <laughs> oh, you know who Chris Elliott is from Schitt's Creek and many other things? I knew it. I knew oh, I, I, I knew it. I, I no. knew it. That was I knew that was him. I, I knew that was him. I was like, that's him, isn't it? I was right. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Who, who does he play? Uh, he plays one of the... <laughs> Roland Shit. Yeah. Oh, in this movie. Yeah. Well, no. In, oh, he's just... In, in Schitt's he's Creek. random... Oh, he's like random guy on the bridge. He's like I don't know, random merchant marine communications. He's the guy that guy. It first says to what is it? He says to one of the other crew members, like, "Oh, look who's here! It's Queen Bitch herself." Oh, okay, that it's guy. That yeah. guy, and he kind of gets a few more lines. Yeah, he's very recognized. I was like, "That's who I think it is." I was like, ah, "I knew it." Yeah, he's on the bridge, uh, possibly working communications and some other things. Let me ask you this, Isaac, just before we uh, do the rating, because I forgot to do the rating there. Did you notice there's a scene, um, he, he, that guy's talking about, uh, Lindsay's, like, oh, if she goes down, like, Bud's gonna need a tranquilizer gun to keep her, uh, like, in line. Yep. And then, right after he says that, there's, like, a really obvious edit where they inserted that, and then it jumps over to, he's like, get me Bud. Did you notice that scene? I think I did. Yeah, I think I. No, I know what you're saying. There was. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you're saying now. Yeah, where all of a sudden there was like a pause, and then like jump cut. It's like what? What, what the hey happened there? Yeah, like he's about to turn his head, and then suddenly like jumps, and he's looking forward again. And I was like, ooh, I wouldn't have included that James Cameron if it was gonna look that jarringly, like of a cut. But but anyway, um, I just yeah, since we rated uh, the last one. I figured we might as well rate this one too, and I'd give this a, a three out of five. If that, uh, I don't know if that seems like a low rating, but that's what I, I feel at the moment. <laughs> um, Isaac, do you have a, a rating for this? Uh, I think I'll give the same thing. Maybe I'll give it like a two point five out of four. Whoa, four? <laughs> oh, this is a five <laughs> uh, scale rating. No, no, I said, uh, oh no, yeah, two point five out of four. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a joke? I'll give you an eight out of ten. <laughs> I think the joke is there's no joke. I don't know. I'll just people use five, so I'll I'll just use four. <laughs> but that's not the rating for these. <laughs> I thought it was. The rating of all. No, it's five. We always do you, five. I thought we used four. No, 
Well, okay, I'll give it like a 3.5 <laughs> out of 5, but I'll also give it like a 1.5 out of 3. How about that? Yeah, because remember for Aliens, you gave it a 6 out of 5. Well, that's because it's Aliens. Of course, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 5. Well, I just mean it's out of 5. <laughs> How come it's a 1.5 out of 3, but it's a... Well, because if we're going... If we have to, like... Five. I have to adjust it for, like, you know... I know, but when it's on the three scale, it's fifty percent. But then, yes, it's not 50%. <laughs> All right, exactly. It's on the... All right, one point eight five out of three. Oh shit! Okay, where's Steve? If Steve is here, he'd be like, "Okay, we're gonna rate it out of eleven point eight. So it's somewhere between it's at somewhere between fifty and sixty six percent for him, but it's unclear exactly where. <laughs> it's on the spectrum. Uh. Well, 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 there we go. We all did. Did you rate it, Eric? I don't know if I got no, your rating. I'm gonna go out of ten. No, um, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's it's four out of five um, for hmm. me, pretty easily. Uh, by the way, um, the character, the the general uh, that Sterling Hayden plays in uh, Doctor Strange Love is General. Apparently, there's no meaning to this, but it's Jack D. Ripper. Yes, Jack D. Ripper. That's it. That is such a great name. Oh my god, I can't wait to discuss that. Um, love that. <laughs> because I'm trying to get you all sponsored by Rotten Tomatoes uh, with the critics, and it's a small critic pool, relatively, like for for most films. 49 critic reviews is a relatively small number for a mainstream film by a mainstream director, but uh. 88% with the critics, 83% with the audience. The little blurb says, The utterly gorgeous special effects frequently overshadow the fact that The Abyss is also a totally gripping, claustrophobic thriller, complete with an interesting crew of characters. Well, well, fair enough. Were they talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture? Oh no! Well, although I, there was some vibes of that uh, when Ed Harris gets taken into the into the saucer. Pretty much the scene I'm watching right now. Also, 2001 vibes because uh, of the reflection on the helmet and everything. Golly, yeah, I was just like, okay, yeah, no, it's. I mean, Cameron did mention in the documentary yeah. 2001, but I think he meant in approach, not so much like. This is oh, 2001. it's just 2001. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, it does feel like that. A lot of bits. And, it, and I do like the comparison of 2010 as well. I guess we got a question, which like throughout these the next you know few, what what is Magnum Opus is? Oh, by the way, I just wanted to mention uh, my three out of five is specifically for the director's cut. The theatrical cut, I would rate much lower, like a two out of five. I really do think that is a, a very weak yeah. film. I think <laughs> I know what his Magnum Opus is, but uh, I guess fun Sylvester fact. Uh, so when they made the extended director's cut he was unable um to write additional music to fill the added bits so they brought in the guy who did the temporary score for the movie before Sylvester <laughs> and he's the one he's the one who scored extended scenes interesting so it really is a temp <laughs> score wow oh but uh thank you Isaac and Eric yet again for continuing this Cameron series with me I'm very much enjoying going through these and uh yeah, very excited to uh, to see where it goes in the, in the future. Oh, one little thing I wanted to say. Some years after I saw this movie, it blew my mind when I was watching Scarface again sometime randomly. And I oh, recognized yeah. that 
I, I was just blown away that um, Lindsay was uh, Tony, Tony Manero's uh, like sister in the movie. I just so she was, yeah. so she was. Yeah, the only other thing I've seen her in. I think she's pretty in this, but she was like smoking hot in Scarface. <laughs> oh, but Isaac, do you wanna do you wanna take us home? It seemed that the aliens or aliens may they they may or may not be aliens. Um, took a lesson out of Last Airbender when Aang pulled that giant wave up. Except these guys did it to the world, so isn't that interesting? But look for these aliens, or not, may, may or may not be aliens in later this year in the film Avatar 2. Until next time. Peace. But look for these aliens, or not, may, may or may not be aliens, in later this year in the film Avatar 2. Until next time. Peace. Yeah, and, and, and watch the shores. Watch the shores. For my little uh, the Thing for Another World reference. But I did want to say, just before I turn off the recording, just because I meant to mention this, um, I watched Gemini Man uh, the other day. Ooh, what you think? Uh, oh, last Lord. night on my 4K disc. Eric, have you watched that? Negative. I, I cannot compel myself to watch that and the other recent-ish sci-fi Will Smith movie with his son. After Earth. Yeah, I just wanted to mention because it's filmed in high frame rate. And the only reason that I bought it and watched it, because I bought the 4K disc, is because James Cameron announced that uh, Titanic and Avatar, he's remastering them in high frame rate. And so I was very curious what that would look like on a, a 4K TV. I can imagine. And it is baffling watching Gemini Man. It's like watching a YouTube video that's been turned into a movie. Oh! Very, very strange. Does it play that way on the disc? Sure does. Sure does. It's one of the only <sighs> discs like that. That's why I bought it. <laughs> There's some YouTube channel I've been following for years. Uh, and it was originally called 4K Clips, and then they changed the name to like 8K Clips or whatever. It's not important. <laughs> but the first time I noticed it, that channel because I think my cousin sent me a link. He's like, check this out. And I was watching it on my phone at the time. This is like five years ago or something. And I was watching it on my phone and it's on YouTube and it, and it plays in high frame rate. And I was like, what the hell is this? Because it played in 4K high frame on YouTube and I was on my phone. I was like, this is crazy because it looked like exactly what you're saying. And I had no idea the disc was released enough in, to play that way, which mm -hmm. now makes me think, why did Peter Jackson not release like 
the Hobbit trilogy with like an alternate uh, as either a special feature or like a bonus disc or something because I would totally buy that for that. Is the Hobbit is it on UHD now? Yeah. Oh wow, I didn't realize. Hmm. Yeah, they're all on UHD. Well, I mean the six films. Oh yeah, I've heard they released from that big set. Yeah, that's interesting that he didn't do that. Hmm. Why not? I would absolutely buy that, even though it is a weird, quirky sensation. Because I, I watched all three of them uh, in that high frame rate 3D at the IMAX. Um, yeah. And as bizarre as it was. I can't believe Cameron's grabbed onto that and he's remastering Titanic in that. I, I, How's that going to look? I don't really care per se for Titanic in that, with that, but I for some reason I can in my mind imagine avatar like that could work with avatar maybe and, and, and th- yeah it, it, and it might not be horrible with avatar actually but we'll see because the avatar 2 is releasing that as well but i know exactly what this would look like i mean what you're saying and because my newest tv has that feature to make things look that way mm. um and every now and then i'll put it on for funsies uh like sometimes I'll do it like let's say you're watching like I'm watching new Doctor Who and I'll pretend like it's classic Doctor Who like Midfire, um, <laughs> because like like you said it makes everything look like it's on videotape. Um, I watched some of Fury Road like that, which is completely bonkers. Oof. I put Pixar movies on with that feature, which makes them look nuts. Um, and I even tried it with some anime because, you know, like in a lot of anime series. They do, you know, first of all, that Japanese animation has like a lower frame rate than Disney that already gives it like a more staggered look. Hmm. But then on top of that, with anime series, they try to have as little movement as possible, you know, to increase production time or to decrease production time. Um, so it's an odd sensation to put that feature on if you watch something like, like My Hero. Because My Hero is an example of one of those shows where if you really pay attention, there's very little movement, except when they ha- they you know simply must, you know what I mean? No, I've never watched it, but, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Oh no, no, you don't have to watch My Hero, but have you watched other anime where if you really pay attention, <laughs> the characters are really like completely still as much as well, possible? Do that thing where the the camera like glides downward while they're having a conversation, so they don't yes. have to move. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, or they'll even do in some modern animes like My Hero, if they do like a, a like a a distance shot, like a long shot of like a crowd, or even key characters, they won't even draw a face. Like um, they'll just draw the characters with just like Q-tip heads that are flesh colored. 